Hello everyone. Uh, thanks a lot for tuning in to this show, which is Wake Up with Saurabh. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think this is the third episode that I'm uploading on uh, Spotify and Anchor and wherever you're listening to it. Uh, so thank you and welcome. Uh, today's episode is genuinely one of my favorite conversations that I've had on the show. Uh, we had a China expert for the Hindu newspaper, a pretty well-renowned and respected journalist. Uh, he worked in China for about ten years as a journalist, and all sorts of very interesting stories with him. So today we have Anand Krishnan who is here, um, and along with him we have comedian of note, uh, which is Neville Shah. And uh, Neville and me spoke to Anand and asked him all sorts of questions about China, starting with where is Jack Ma, and going onwards to all sorts of things, including sports. And it was great, a really fun chat. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Before I lead you into it, uh, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it. Uh, I'm going to be uploading at least ten episodes of Wake Up with Saurabh, and uh, if by that time we don't have enough listenership, I'm going to stop. So to keep it motivated, if you enjoy these shows, please subscribe and please tell your friends about the audio version as well. Uh, I'm also starting live shows, so my first show is going to be happening in Pune on 22nd, 23rd, and 24th of January. Tickets will be on saurabhpanth.com. S O R A B H P A N T. So uh, Pune is the first place. We're also going to be following up with shows in Bangalore. I think Wizag, Hyderabad, and a bunch of others as well. So head over to saurabhpanth.com for tickets. Uh, that's anyway the website for uh, finding out where I'm touring. Wherever you're listening to this, even if you're listening to this one year down the line, uh, and subscribe to the show on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash/pantonfire, and get to our Discord and all those things that you do. Uh, this audio version is. Uh, uh absolutely no way for me to monetize it so if you'd like to support please go ahead in the description you'll find the insta mojo and the paypal link please go and support if you can if you can't no problem just enjoy the show i'm here at your service and for you i i'm i'm the love of your life uh, enjoy this episode thank uh, sorry in case uh anantal call you on we are live we are live we are live, live you're already live uh Uh, my guest has revealed himself to Oli. So yeah, uh, Anand, if you can put off your video, that'll be really nice. Thank you so much. Um, all right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show, uh, late Opi, and for the second uh, uh, day running, my guest has revealed himself. This is a ridiculous behavior. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm very excited. Uh, by the way, the, the gentleman you just saw right now, I'm genuinely very excited to talk to him. Um, he's written this book called India's China Challenge. and as you can see i am uh, halfway through it exactly this pencil pointing out is all the ridiculous number of, amount of notes that i have written inside this book um highly recommended it's a great uh, sci-fi thriller about uh, the uh, the reality of china and uh, india it's great i highly recommend it if you have uh, the time uh, or, or the inclination to know about uh, these things um so yeah Okay. Uh, there's a power cut in Chennai, so Anand is saying that there's uh, he'll be back in two minutes. No worries, Anand. Take your time. Uh, all power cuts are fine by me. Uh, everybody watching, I hope everybody's good. Uh, anybody, anyone from TIS and four four two Discord. Acha, yahan se aisa. Very nice. Uh, Anand looks like Vivek Oberoi says Amir Ghazi. This is a very uh, <laughs> very weird bit of feedback. <laughs> I'm not sure he looks like Anand uh, Vivek Oberoi, but also I mean it's not terrible to look like Vivek Oberoi. Ask Vivek over here. Okay, a few things to announce. Uh, who's coming up for the next week? Uh, on Tuesday, I have Ashish Shakya popping in for the first time. Deep Chabria, who's never been here as well, uh, and uh, Ronak, who's been here as well. Either Ronak or Jia. I'm trying to figure out who's going to be there. Jia uh, Sethi's never been as well, so I'm going to bring her either this Tuesday or one of the next ones. Uh, that's happening on Tuesday. Then um, forthcoming week on uh, Thursday, I'm trying to do one of two things. There's going to be a bunch of people. I'll just tell you who. 
who's going to pop in over the next couple of weeks uh, depending depending on the schedules and stuff for that uh, captain raghu raman uh, sonali bendre ritesh deshmukh um, uh mayanti langer is going to be here at some stage uh, whenever she's free uh, so yeah lots of fun stuff coming and a lot of people who are uh, experts in their fields as well uh, if you have any suggestions for who you'd like me to have on the show please feel free to put them in the comments because uh, honestly that's how that's how things work uh, ayush uh, vetkar is already excited i want to see how neville shah is going to overcomplicate and already overcomplicated topic sarapan got a poly for this and finish my forfor to edit kafi excited that's hilarious i am waiting for exactly that <laughs> actually oddly enough i think i'm going to be the one who's going to confuse things out because i've read the book and it's made me way more confused about china than i should be even uh, more uh, okay a few things to mention uh, that are coming up and that are already happening a lot of you guys have constantly been telling me saurabh can you please make this audio version available and my friends without any managers without any help i have achieved the success so the last two episodes of uh, wake up with saurabh are now on spotify and uh, on anchor so i'm putting the link in the live chat right now you can go ahead and and sort of listen to it uh, the last two episodes which is the one that i did with uh, the cricket premies one yesterday and the one with the chess premies as well um both those two are available the one with meghnad will also be available this one will also be available later on on that particular link so please go out there and subscribe to that as well and uh, yeah uh, please throw over like so that we get more people tuning in okay that's all i'm going to say saurav shetty says will never be awake that's a tough task never is wide awake dude he's like very alert and all today uh, abhimanyu karandikar says call super power football thoda indian football scene ko bhi highlights milenge यार बताते रहो कौन कौन है मैं मैंने तीन चार लोगों का ट्राई किया था आई ट्राई टू गेट बाईचंग भोटिया एंड सुनील छेत्री बट इट्स नॉट रियली वर्क आउट जस्ट येट हो जाएगा वैसे एट सम स्टेज सो एनीवे दैट्स द लिंक फॉर द ऑडियो वर्जन ऑफ दिस शो वी आल्सो डिड अ एनिमे स्ट्रीम यस्टरडे व्हिच इज क्वाइट अ लॉट ऑफ फन विद आकाश मेहता टॉकिंग अबाउट अटैक ऑन टाइटंस सीजन 3 सो गो टू दैट न्यू चैनल एंड सब्सक्राइब देयर इफ यू आर इंटरेस्टेड इन एनिमे गेमिंग ऑल सॉर्ट्स ऑफ थिंग्स एज़ वेल एज़ क्लिप्स फ्रॉम दिस पर्टिकुलर शो आई पुट द लिंक वंस अगेन इन द YouTube लाइव चैट Uh, another thing i am starting stand up live uh, this month finally so 22nd 23rd 24th i'm going to be in pune's pune uh, the tickets will be up shortly on saurabhpanth.com uh, please come and check it out and last thing i will mention is uh, you can support the show on insta mojo and paypal and all those things and uh, i will also be giving uh, match updates on the side because i know some of you are like kya hai ye uh, akshay natu's already started with a super chat thanks a lot akshay says jack ma ka pata nahi माँ जैक तो सिडनी में हो रहा है इंडिया के साथ इंजरीज रेसिज्म पेंडिंग लॉस वेल सो फार वी हैव अबाउट फोर्टी रन स्कोडेंटलीपल Uh, who are experts in the field in whatever zone uh, so today we have a china expert anand krishnan who is uh, the uh, he writes for the hindu and uh, uh, he's written a book called india's china challenge which is great fun i know nothing about any of these things but i've read his book so i wonder if some of them i'll also get nevil shah shortly to talk about that as well uh, so yeah th- that's basically what happens uh, so without further ado i want to bring on my opening guest my my uh, A guest of honor, ladies and gentlemen, please give a thunderous round of applause in the chats 
for mr anand krishnan anand uh, if your light is back please put on your camera hello anand hi good morning that's a very nice one what happened there was a power cut in chennai is it yeah so they keep coming and going so i keep having to switch between wifi and 4g so just hopefully it lasts for the next hour or so so fingers crossed well this is a problem that is there in every city in india which is that like i live in mumbai and in the the my thing will always go at a point where i'm doing a brand deal for somebody like like i'll be talking to hardik pandya and that took like seven months for us to coordinate and then three minutes in he'll shut off so, so like what do you do and so anand i have to ask you a very critical question i used to ask this question earlier uh wait I, I, before i just jump into it how are you anand i hope you're well i can't complain i mean given the situation uh, can't complain i think chennai seems to be recovering from i think it was quite a tough few months but things uh, fingers crossed seem to be getting a little back to normal in chennai superb so i mean with that out of the way i have to ask you a very critical question i used to ask a variant of this uh, previously to uh, people who are my guests uh, everybody who walk who has watched the show is aware of how this goes so uh, i'd like to ask you anand krishnan anand krishnan where is jackma please tell us anand where is jackma what have you done with it kiski saajish hai ye kiska haath hai isme batao anand krishnan please tell us where is jackma yeah i wasn't prepared for that sort of but but <laughs> i've never been on uh, republic tv but now i feel like i have so so thank you for that no no i would have cut you off by then actually okay, i did yeah, just to yeah. just to be fair no it's a, it's a been such a, it's been a story that it's been going around for a week now and my really yeah. short answer is i nobody knows i don't know but i think that it's a slightly more complicated case uh, than i think the way it's been covered in the press especially here where it's as if it's a xi jinping president xi jinping versus jack ma issue which i don't think that's at all what it is it's more about alibaba becoming too big for the comfort of the communist party it's about control over data it's about the communist party feeling that uh, the the alibaba has grown too powerful especially when it comes to online financial services and trying to tame them so i think there's lots of regulatory issues involved and so far i should say that I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that he's been personally accused of criminal wrongdoing or criminal activity. I, my best guess is he's lying low while the investigation, while the anti-trust probe continues until that finishes. I think he's been told to keep quiet and lay low, assist them in the investigations. I don't think that he's going to be personally charged or whatever. Is my best reading of the situation. What was it? Something that he said, or, or you like? What did he say exactly? I'm not. I, I honestly, I consciously tried not to follow the story because I wanted to get the insights from you. Um, so I mean, that's basically me just uh, sort of hiding my laziness. So what? What exactly uh, transpired prior to this entire thing? So the background was they were ready for this huge IPO of the Ant Group, which is the financial arm, uh, and they're behind AliPay, which is this amazing app that everybody uses in China. uh and so they were reading for the ipo which was going to raise 35 billion dollars which would have been a record uh, on on the eve of it perhaps not the smartest thing that he did was he was uh, a speaker at a financial forum in shanghai where he went on this uh, sort of kind of like a rant at china's financial regulators uh, and he said that how they've stifled innovation he said china didn't doesn't have a functioning financial system he said that the state controlled banks were behaving like pawn shops Uh, and he said that uh, the way that his company which is true in the sense that uh, why his company has been so successful is 
He's enabled funding for small businesses that were not getting funding from state-controlled banks. He's allowed people to get interest uh, on deposits that state banks were giving much less of. So uh, I think that all of this led to them suspending the IPO at the 11th hour, which was bad for China. I mean, the whole world was waiting for this IPO. And I think it will, it will really cause a lot of flutters among foreign investors. But I think the Communist Party wanted to send a message to him and they, and they were less bothered about how it would be seen around the world. And I think that's something maybe we can come back to, but always worth remembering when we talk about China is we often ask ourselves, why do they do something which the whole world feels you know, is counterproductive. Often the answer is, you know, they would always do what they feel is in their interest at home. And I think that always takes priority over how the world will see it. And I think that's a very useful thing to remember when we ask why China did X, Y, or Z. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, uh, like, like this, is, this is a question and it sounds like a very, very basic question to ask. But I have a feeling that most Indians and most people across the world are not even sure about the answer, which is that how is a head of state of China even selected because it's not an election, but that entire, uh, that was one of the questions that was one of the few, first few questions I wrote down. And I still find uh, not, not, not uh, an incredible amount of sort of clarity on how that happens. So uh, how does it happen? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a good question. The short answer is the communist party chooses it. Uh, we don't know how they do it, but it's just done internally. Uh, in the last 10, 20 years, there's been like a mix of different factions within the party. Uh, where it's essentially a situation where different people owe their allegiances to different figures in the party. So just to give you a small example, before Xi Jinping took over and he disrupted this internal dynamics in many ways, in the past, you always had two different groups uh, and each would sort of, and they would kind of bargain internally. Of course, it's not, not transparent at all. And they would kind of decide in the top level of the Politburo Standing Committee, which in the past had nine people, you would say have four guys from one, faction, five guys from one faction, they would divvy it up internally. Um, and someone, I'm sure the Chinese are not going like, to uh, like to hear me say this, but someone to me explained it very simply as it's kind of like how a, how a mafia would work in the, sense of, in, in the sense of you have different families with different allegiances and they kind of come to a understanding, informal understanding of how to run things, right? So, um, but then that was done internally. So the party meets every five years. Uh, for a Congress, and that's when they choose the leadership for every five years. Uh, and But they do want to give it kind of a stamp of legitimacy. So what they do is, once they've internally chosen who's going to be the next guy, then they have a system where they actually have a parliament of about 2,600 people who are party nominated, and they would vote uh, on this selection. So for example, when she was nominated, uh, they voted, and I, if I remember right, I mentioned in the book, I forget the ex exact numbers, but I think it was something like 2,683 for and one abstained. So everybody joked, like, possibly it was him <laughs> because, he, because he thought that it was 2684 and zero, it would look not so great. So, so that's how it works. In short, it's done internally through negotiations between various groups in the party. But I think what she has done is he's accumulated power so fast that he's shattered, I think, a lot of these things. And he's, it's pretty much a one-man show now. And in the past, it wasn't a one-man show. Even when it was Jiang Zemin's time, Jiang Zemin had to have the former leader, Deng Xiaoping, over his shoulder. Uh, when Hu Jintao took over, he had the previous guy, Jiang Zemin, kind of watch over his shoulder. And some people in China felt it gave the system some uh, stability because it wasn't like a dictatorship in the Middle East or somewhere where you have like one guy or even North Korea 
you have one guy or one family, right? You have like a the system kind of had its own checks and balances because it was collective in a sense. But I think it's a big risk for China because in the last six years, seven years, she has pretty much stopped the collective leadership system, and it's a one-man show. And I think that obviously comes with a lot of risks as well. Yeah, I mean it's so interesting because uh, there's so many things to to talk talk about in this because this literally sounds like how. uh the indian national congress would select a president would elect a president right like so i mean they haven't which is a different thing altogether or let's say the bjp selecting a, electing a president and that person is immediately like hey you're running the country now which is quite a leap uh and i what i loved was that um, uh in the book itself you mentioned that to try and at least create the sort of uh, facade of that this is a multi party system the two other parties that are the lead parties i, I what are the names again No, actually, there are, I think seven other parties. So, and all of these were existing when the PRC was as People's Republic was established in 1949. I think there's like a Workers Party. There's a League for Promoting Democracy. There's like a Peasants Party, and all this stuff that goes back to 1949, and they still exist because they want to present this veneer that they're a multi-party state. So officially, they can, it's a it's a one-party rule country, uh, but. the the upper house of the parliament actually has representatives from all of these parties uh, till today and i've interviewed some of these guys and it's always quite funny that they go back all of these years but they pretty much just function right now to kind of put a rubber stamp on whatever the the communist party is doing yeah because i remember the two parties that you had mentioned one was the both had democracy in their name yeah. <laughs> i was like this is hilarious <laughs> and it's like but i mean obviously the 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 format at least works for them as a country and I, this is a discussion that i was having um, i don't know with whom uh, where you you the, the more you sort of read about uh, global affairs the more you realize that democracy is not the norm for quite a large part of the world like i think the reason why they keep saying that hey this is a big thing that india is the largest democracy or whatever it is uh, is because the rest of the world doesn't really have it <laughs> i mean not the rest of the world but like probably but 35% of the world probably doesn't have a format of democracy it's either a monarchy or whatever else it is um, yeah no and i would just add to that in the sense that like i i'm always sort of wary of looking at it as a democracy versus dictatorship binary because among authoritarian states you have such a huge degree from singapore on the one hand to north korea democracies you have a huge uh, sort of spectrum as well where you have europe on the one hand and now i'd say you have the united states on <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you have like a big spectrum. I think on every category. Yeah, the United States one is something which is. Uh, I mean, like I, I think they've. They, they. I mean, this is going to. Like, I can imagine being a leader of the United States and the kind of. If you go to another country and comment on how things are happening there, the immediate response is going to be like Capitol Hill. That you've got nothing to counter that. Um, okay, I'll just take a couple of. Uh, um, Uh, one super chat that's popped in and also again please uh, like the the stream if you can um anisha rao has said roy has said talk about concentration camps in china please also the express expansionist policy as well we're going to come to all of that there's a lot to cover by the way there's a lot to unpack i have a feeling that like even while reading the book all i could think of was like this is going to require two sessions <laughs> at least there's a lot to unpack in this uh, neville is going to come in the next 5 minutes uh, don't uh, don't uh, be stressed out guys again like the stream and give some uh, love so that more people tune in um, one super chat is popped in from ishan call ishan thanks a lot for your super chat who says finally caught your stream live after so many months amazing panelists amazing discussions thank you so much really appreciate it brother uh, really kind of you okay um 
they, they recently the one of the news that popped in was about she's in she's in Jinping. I'm going to get all of these names wrong. Um, he basically removed the limit on the ten years. So, uh, a I want to know a little bit more about that, and also whether there was any resistance to that from the rest of the Communist Party, and what that means. Does it essentially mean that he's going to rule, aiming to rule, like till death, or what is the what is the plan? I mean, what is the, what is the end goal of that? No, I think that's uh, for me. That's the single most important change that he's done since he took over. So he took over as the as the general secretary of the party in November 2012. And then, as the president of, of China in in 2013 March, and so one of the most important things he did was stop this 10-year term limit. And and to to be honest with you, it was really unpopular at the time among everyone that I spoke to in 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 Beijing, whether it was professors or ch- journalists who worked for Chinese papers. No one thought it was a good idea.、Uh, I remember so clearly the very day it happened, and we were covering this in the in the parliament in Beijing. And、um, I remember taking a taxi back home, and the taxi driver actually told me he, he was so disappointed and distressed by this, and he actually told me he's like, you know, we're we're becoming like North Korea. So that was the initial the initial response. I clearly remember at the time was really negative, and people were really concerned that a system that worked well for them, for a for an authoritarian country to have three peaceful transitions of power was was unique,、uh, which China did from Deng to Jiang Zemin,、uh, Jiang to Hu, and Hu to Xi. So、um, and so, for them to break that, I think a lot of people were worried.、Uh, what would this mean for the future when you have this system of succession that's been dumped in the dustbin overnight? And I think that that's still a question we don't know because、uh, in 2022 next year he's going to finish 10 years in term, and I'm pretty sure he's going to carry on till 2027. So every five years they have a congress. So I remember initially uh, the, uh, once there was such global pushback against this. All over the world, people、uh, I think looked at China differently after he did this. I think the Financial Times had an interesting story where I think he,、uh, Xi Jinping had met with international CEOs, with American and European CEOs, and he apparently told them at the time that you know I can't believe people are saying I'm a president for life.、Uh, it doesn't mean I'm going to rule you know till the end. So I think it's possible that he it's possible that he'll stay on. I think health will be the biggest question mark,、uh, and. It would be interesting to see how he was 59 when he took over in 2012, so、uh, so that still gives him some time. So、uh, I mean, compared to Trump and Biden, he's still younger.、Yeah. So so I think he would carry on for I would say definitely five more years, health permitting till 2027, and beyond that, it's anyone's guess. It's quite possible that he may hold on to one.、Uh, as I mentioned in the book, there are three titles that give him his power. One is the head of the party, the other is the head of the military. And the third is, as president, is kind of actually the least important. We call him President Xi Jinping, but it's just a title that they give.、Uh, so he looks like a president in the eyes of the world. In Chinese, there's no word for president. They call him the national chairman, but they, but in English, they call him President Xi just because I think it connotes to the world that he's an elected president. In a subtle way, I think it connotes to the world that he's just like any other president.、Uh, but I would say that it's possible he may hold on to one of those two titles. I'm just speculating here, but it could be that he. He still hasn't found a successor. I, I think he hasn't. He hasn't appointed anybody right now, who's really clearly framed as somebody who's going to take over from him. There are two or three provincial level party leaders who are known to be close to him that he's promoting, but none have the experience yet to take over. So it could be that he's grooming somebody, and he would maybe hand over to them five, six years down the line at the next party congress.、Uh, I don't know if he. And he could always, since 
he could give them the titles and hold on to power. That's that's something that's not going to stop him in any way. But I, I don't know if he's going to carry on to at least 80, 85 like, like Mao did. I mean, I, I don't think he would do that. Yeah, it was so interesting that, I mean, that you bring up Mao because, I mean, the... the... The the latter half of Mao's uh, career is just like it was. I I didn't I didn't realize. I mean, I you knew that it was terrible, but you didn't realize exactly how terrible it was. Um, because uh, I mean, the Cultural Revolution you've heard about, the Great Leap Forward, was the, what was the third one? The um, uh, I think those were the two main. Uh, yeah. The the Great Leap Forward from 1958 to 62, and the Cultural Revolution from 66 to 76. I think it's interesting you say that because in China as well. Uh, that's, there's a reason why I think school kids learn about him as a guy who founded China. So his achievements through the Civil War, uh, defeating the Kuomintang and establishing the PRC in 1949 is what people focus on because they know that post, he, was a, he was like a revolutionary leader, but he was, to put it simply, he was pretty crap at governing. Um, so, so I think that in China, they do focus on the first part of him which is why they still venerate him. He's still the face you see on the currency notes in China, which would, which, which would be a shock to you or me, given that from 1949 uh, till 1976, it was such a one disaster, disaster after another. But uh, I think they feel that so much of the country's legitimacy, I should rephrase, the party's legitimacy is tied to him. So at no, I think at no cost will they consider reevaluating that. Which is why that this this myth they have to preserve of him being this great leader who founded the country, and they kind of try to hush up the rest of what he did. Yeah, because there's, I mean, the one of the things that has been a global topic for a while is religion in China, right? And 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 the the more you read about about China as a country, you're like, I think I think Mao is the religion, right? Because there's uh, everything is whitewash and everything is positive, and there's nothing really negative about it, like. Uh, you mentioned in the book that there's absolutely no mention of Tianmen's, it's Tianmen, right? Am I getting yeah. that right? Yeah. Tiananmen, there's yeah. no mention of that in any of the history books. They've just completely disregarded that that even happened or occurred. Uh, and uh, the, the stories, by the way, of the cultural evolution, you were interviewing a bunch of people and how that panned out and the, the level, like just basically schoolgirls who killed a teacher because they thought that she was... Uh, uh, whatever part of the sort of the anti-Mao regime or whatever it is supposed to be, it's it's quite uh, it's quite a lot. It's uh, yeah, no, for uh, sure. And and Mao has that blood on his hands because these were 15, 16 year olds, right? So uh, at some at some level, it's so difficult to hold them responsible when you're a kid of that age and you're whipped up into this frenzy. Uh, and he that's why he chose students to begin the Cultural Revolution in 1966 because he realized that they would be the easiest group of people who would be malleable and do what he wanted. Um, yeah. And teachers were such an easy target because this was basically class warfare, right? So he did this because his own position within the party was weak. Uh, the, this great leap forward, which he launched in 58 to kind of make China the superpower was a disaster. It ended in famine. Uh, one reason why he launched the war with India in 62 was partly because he was getting all this domestic uh, criticism at home and the war very neatly silenced everyone. The best thing uh, for an under fire dictator to do is start a war. Um, and then again in 66, when he was under fire at home, what he did was he, la he launched a class war essentially. Uh, and that helped him solidify his power, but at great cost uh, to people in China. And, but as you said, it is, I think he wanted him to be the only religion, which as you put it, 
and that was the case until the 70s when uh, so much of uh, things that we still don't know about in detail happened in Tibet and other places throughout the 1950s and 60s uh, because they were told, people they were told that what they were doing is feudal, superstitious. Uh, monks were made to do things like uh, to show their allegiance. Monks were forced to uh, hit statues of the Buddha, which you can imagine how traumatic it must have been for them. Uh, monasteries were destroyed. All of this happened. And it was all essentially one man's aim to solidify his own political power. To that end, it worked. Uh, and uh, so, but I think the one thing that Deng Xiaoping did right was in the 80s was ease up on all of that, which is why religion came back in such a huge way. We, there's still no official surveys in China, but everyone I knew, I mean, there's almost everybody I knew was either a Buddhist. Uh, Buddhism is kind of like Hinduism where there's no, it's not like a church. You can have that belief. You go to temples now and then, right? But everyone I knew, a uh, majority of people I knew had some kind of belief where they would go to temples to pray. Uh, there's so many Christians in China, which I don't think people are aware of. I'd say it's the fastest growing religion in China. I know so many people who are quietly practicing Christians uh, and religion has come back in a huge way uh, in China, I think since the 80s and 90s, because I think you had all this pent up stuff that people couldn't do uh, throughout Maoism. So interesting, there was a, and when I went to Beijing ages back, I went, I, I bought this watch, right? And this is, and this is a watch with General Mao's face on it. And I bought it for my wife. And um, I took it and it worked like really nicely for a month. I bought for 150 rupees, which is like nothing. And you're like, dude, you're getting a watch for 150 bucks. Conked off after a month. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a little weird. And it took me 250 bucks to repair it. And I was like, this is relatively typical of the whole historic context. Okay, so talking about uh, history and experts, I got to bring on somebody who's an absolute expert in everything in the world. Uh, uh, he's a comedian. He's also uh, host of a podcast called 4422 and part of uh, uh, the internet set. So ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mr. Neville Shah. Neville, please come. Bring yourself. Bring yourself, Neville. Can't, can't hear you. Can't hear you. Can't hear you. Your voice is uh, sounding like you're going through a tunnel. Can't hear you. Okay. Um, see, Neville is also going through a power cut generally in life. Is it on mine or is? It... No, I I can't hear him either. No, no, we can't hear you at all, Neville. See, this is what happens when you're too lazy to pick up the uh, the <laughs> the mic. Neville, Neville, before this entire tech began, he's like, my mic is too far away. It's there, and we're like, just it's there to pick it up. <laughs> we can't hear you at all, buddy. Can't hear you at all. Yeah, if you want to take some time to correct that. Okay. Um, meanwhile, I'll just take a few uh, uh, super chats that are popping in uh, while um, Neville Shah OP is happening. Baba OP is happening. We've also hit uh, a thousand concurrent viewers. That's great. And 500 uh, plus likes. So please go ahead and like it. So more people tune in because I generally think that this is a very interesting story and uh, Anand is, uh, is the expert on it. So yeah, we got to get his insights on it. Uh, let's take a couple of super chats. Amai Kulkarni says, finally watching it live. Good topics and great panelists. Thank you, Saurabh and Tis guys for making lockdown bearable. Hashtag Taklia OP, hashtag Bawa OP. Appreciate it on both counts. Bawa has disappeared briefly. He'll come back. Uh, Grim Fandango says it's at Bawa. And he'll come back. Don't worry. Uh, Anirudh Agnihotri has a question, which I, I mean, I obviously don't know the, the answer to this. I, I, I don't know if uh, Anand, you've read this particular book. Uh, he asked a question about how accurate is Arun Shori's book uh, titled Self-Deception, India-China Policies, Origins, Premises, and Lessons. Have you read this book? 
I haven't, but um, thank you for pointing it out. I will look it up. I always uh, enjoy his writing, so I'll look it up. Um, I did just finish and reviewed, actually, in today's Hindu, I have a review of Subramanian Swami's book on China, uh, which is quite interesting, actually. And uh, he actually, you know, he's been dealing with China since the 60s. It's, he's actually a real China expert, knows Mandarin. I don't know how many people are aware of the fact. Oh, that, wow, really? Yeah. And uh, he, so he's written a very interesting book called Himalayan Challenge, which I, and he pulls no punches, which I thought most interesting was how the, the Narendra Modi government has handled the border crisis. He's very, very critical of that, which, which I thought was quite surprising. I'm going to try. You can hear me now. Yeah, yeah. Volume is really loud, but we can hear you. Oh, volume is loud. That's fine. That's adjustable. Yeah, yeah. That's good. But we can hear you. Yeah. It still sounds like you're Thank a radio you announcer in a train, but it's good. Like, go for it, oh. man. Baba, you have to ask your important question, yes. uh, Neville. Anand, I have a very important question to ask. What about uh, property prices in China? <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> I need to know. Well, if, you're, if you're looking to buy, um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've always thought it would be lovely to own a property there, but the prices <laughs> in Beijing, where I lived, are uh, unbelievable. So, basically, to give you a small, to give you an example, so if you wanted to get uh, something like um, a thousand square feet apartment. Outside the fifth ring road, which is end of the city, yeah. uh, it would probably cost you around eight crores. So there you go. How many crores? crores? About eight, eight crores. Cro eight crores. Eight. Wow, dude, that's so, yeah, like. So, and that's a that would be like a one-hour commute on the metro to the city center. So just to give you an idea of how it is. Uh, so I, uh, you know, before I left China, believe it or not, in the end of 2018, as an experiment, I wanted to see what would be the cheapest thing place that I could buy in Beijing. So that time on my hands when I was leaving, I wanted to see what would be the cheapest place that I could buy and technically what counts as Beijing city. So I took the train, I found a real estate agent, I took the train to the very end station, which was, which was like in a village, uh, right on the border of Hebei province, which is where Beijing ends and Hebei begins. And it was a tiny apartment, it was horrendous. It was something like 400 square feet or less in terrible shape. And it would have cost me a crore. So there you go. Wow. Wow. Yeah. This is what, so you guys were talking about some, by the way, superb, huh? Anand, like un, un, unreal stuff that you guys have been talking about. Like, it's just crazy. I, I, I have a couple of uh, uh, thing. I mean, apart from historical sanitization that they do in the history textbooks and stuff like that, which yeah. uh, the parallel is close or what with India. Like, isn't the parallel almost there uh, with where we are? Because we're talking about term limits. We're talking about historical sanitization in textbooks. We're talking about removing, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that that prevent uh, good, uh, transparency between uh, government and, 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 and its people and things like that. How, 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 how much of a parallel is it? You know, I think that I'd say it's very different only because in China, you're talking about an entire system with zero checks and balances, um, whether it's the press, or whether it's the courts, or I'd say the biggest example is, say, me being here in Chennai, the very fact that we have a system of government where the state government is so important here, right? Wherever mm -hmm. you live, in many ways, for people here, in many ways, it's more, in your day-to-day -day immediate existence is more dependent on your state government than it is on whoever is in Delhi. Correct. Which uh, I think sometimes in Delhi that gets lost out. So the difference in China being that uh, in the book, I try and explain to people how it would be if we had that example here, uh, so if you had, it would be like saying the BJP or the Congress uh, being the ruling party in Delhi, 
uh, also being the ruling party in every state, also being in charge of the army, which won't be a national army, but a party-controlled army, also appointing the head of every major bank, also appointing the head of every university, also appointing the head of your resident welfare association. So right from the top to the bottom, it's all one party. Yeah. So, so in that sense, it's very, very, very different. But having said that, I think that, unfortunately, I think there are some trends where not just in India, but all over the world, I think we're moving in some directions where China was ahead of the curve, not in a good way. Uh, for example, if you look at the fact that they banned Facebook and Twitter in 2009, uh, that the fact that they believe right from the outset, they said that the internet can't be free, that countries have to administer the internet, the idea of cyberspace sovereignty, Hmm. Uh, I think that India buys that in a big, big way. Um, I think the fact that I think these notions that I think China was ahead of the curve with are getting currency all over the world uh, in terms of the trade-off between state power and, and how much the freedom people should have in terms of information. I think we are moving slightly. Along yeah, yeah, but when you mentioned cyber <laughs> cyberspace sovereignty with the Twitter controversy that's currently happening, I don't know how much of the belief that we actually have. Which is uh, which is also fairly interesting. Is it in the geopolitical interest of say um, uh, the, the, the the Chinese government to so blatantly say? I I know that in 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 a in a less globalized world, in a less developed uh, uh, world where the communication was a little less, and you know you didn't know about everything that was happening. Your only source was actual physical newspapers. Um, uh, and foreign correspondents. But in, in in today's day and age, is I mean, China is one of those few countries that gets away with whatever they want, right? Like they get away with. Uh, uh, I mean, they're the only conduit to North America, uh, to North Korea. Uh, they're literally the only conduit in the world to North Korea, barring some part of Japan, maybe. But uh, you're still the only conduit to North Korea. You're uh, at loggerheads with Russia. You're uh, also extreme friends with uh, uh, Pakistan, not only in terms of logistical support, but in terms of military support, in terms of economic uh, uh, funding, etc. Against, say, talking about, uh, and, and it goes against the the UN sanctions that have been put, etc., etc. Uh, and while my enemy's enemy is my best friend, uh, worked in a, in a in a time of yore. Uh, how how do they get away with it today? Is it just because they pretty much own half the world? Is that is that the only reason? In a nutshell, yes, probably because I mean, if you look at the fact that, that if you look at the fact that so many things that I think people in India thought that there would be global pushback to China doing that never ha that never really happened, right? Uh, whether what happened with the boundary in, uh, since uh, the summer of last year, India's I think it's important for us to remember that even if we have very good relations with the U.S. Uh, growing military relations with the U.S. At the end of the day, I think we will be on our own in dealing with this. That's something I think that everybody should be aware of. Uh, if you look at the fact that even in the South China Sea, countries like Vietnam and Philippines discovered this, that over the last two years, when they've been doing all this island building and uh, claiming lots of the South China Sea, the U.S. made statements, but at the end of the day, nothing happened. If you look at Hong Kong, where uh, China was legally obligated to Britain, to preserve Hong Kong's freedoms that they promised in 1997 for 50 years. Uh, in 2020, all of those freedoms, many of those freedoms have been gone and no one did anything about it. If you look at the fact that uh, in Xinjiang, you have this insane situation, which I never thought you'd see in our lifetime, where you have up to a million people who have, who have been sent to re-education camps. Uh, 
the EU made statements about it, but then last week the EU signed an investment treaty with China. Uh, Germany uh, says uh, Germany has been one of the most outspoken countries when it comes to human rights on China, but then almost every big German car maker uh, needs a China market. They're probably doing more sales in China than they're doing anywhere else in the world. Um, even if you look at the US, I think at the end of the day, one of the reasons why the US-China relationship has been becoming so bad is because American companies were making huge... I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but the fact <laughs> is that American companies that were making lots China of money... China is a controversy. So it's so, I mean, American <laughs> companies were... They were making lots of money off the China market throughout the 90s and 2000s, and you never heard that much concerns then. Uh, even though I think Xi Jinping himself, because of the kind of his rule, he's led to more concerns. But it also coincides with the fact that Chinese companies need American companies less. So now that they need American companies less and American companies are having a harder time in the China market, you're seeing more problems come up in the relationship. So I think to, to a degree, what you said in a sentence is right. I think a lot of it is dependent upon the fact of country, com countries making money off of China. And I think it's no coincidence that when countries are making less money off of China, you're seeing more of these political problems prop up. There was a whole bit which I, like there's so much stuff that I read in this book where I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? Like I because they, they like one of the things that was there was uh, the fact that the PLA, which is the uh, the China the Chinese mm -hmm. armies, essentially it's run by the by the party. It's not run by China, yeah. which is uh, controlled by China. Sorry, which is which I was and the, and now Xi basically he's created a post for himself where he essentially runs it, and then uh, can related we start to calling what, him. A, can we start calling him Eleven, please? Just, Look, I mean, you think on. you think that's what happened in that uh, that show or what that uh, Stranger Things? It's about it's about she as a young man, <laughs> but he creates all this chaos because he's eleven back then. <laughs> uh, no, eleven because on, you know that DD anchor called him eleven, right? So I'm saying. Are you serious? Yeah, there's a DD anchor who has called him eleven oh, thing. So that's why I'm saying we should go with eleven. Um, so I'm just saying it's, it's it's funny, right, Anand? What you're talking about yeah. because. Like they're a they're a communist setup, but they have a capitalist economy model, which is uh, how, how does that yeah. how does that how does that how do those two uh, pretty much opposite opposing uh, systems function so well for the lack of a better word smoothly uh, uh, for the for the upper echelon in in China? I mean, I'm saying if you're if you're in China, it's probably not going to work. And then I have a dumb question about Sonam Wangchuk after that, but sure. <laughs> No, I think that uh, I think that put it simply. It's if you look at the political apparatus of China, it's communist, as how Lenin would have imagined a communist state to be, where you have an all-powerful party that has a huge organization that controls everything right from the top to the bottom. Uh, they control the military, they control the press, uh, and so I think in politically that structure is still very much like communist Leninist. That hasn't changed. Uh, so but I think what they just did is they opened up, uh, they had to. Uh, I think that was what Deng Xiaoping did really smartly was open up the economy uh, in some sectors. But it's also important to remember that uh, the state still occupies like the commanding heights of, say, telecom and things like that. You don't have private companies. All the big telecom companies, for example, in China are controlled by the state. The big banks are controlled by the state. One reason why they're so pissed off with Jack Ma is because his online financial services were eroding the control that uh, state-run banks had. Uh, so I think that, so it's a, it's a mix of both. It's not that they are completely capitalist, it's just that they allowed the market to play a role in the economic growth that they needed. They allowed private enterprise, which they needed because the system wasn't working under Mao. 
but they haven't at all diluted political control. And I think under Xi Jinping, that's even more clear. Uh, and I think that there was some attempt to reform the state-controlled sectors of the economy throughout the 2000s, the first two decades. A lot of that has been, there's a halt to that. And I think Xi Jinping has made it clear that he's a big backer of a mix that the state should control some amounts of the economy and there shouldn't be a dilution of that. So a lot of Chinese private sector players like Jack Ma uh, have for many, many, many years called for the state to retreat from the economy. And they're saying, listen, you guys handle the politics. We need to have a real free market. That's why we're yeah. lagging behind the US. We can't innovate. But I think she has made it very clear that he wants the private sector to abide by the party's rule. The, even though it's not that he's going to kill private enterprise, but I think he's going to make it very clear that this mix is going to continue and, and there'll be no diluting of the state. And this is not the first time they've made someone uh, someone so powerful uh, from the economic side. Uh, I mean, sure, they've had religious yeah. prisoners and they've had... Uh, but this is not the first time that they've made someone who is uh, making money disappear. Uh, not the first time, yeah. Not the first time. And uh, 2018, they had about four or five people that, they, that went away in, in, in 2018 or something. Right. So the guy who was the uh, the previous richest man before Jack Ma, uh, uh, who I, I don't know if you know this big company called Wanda, the Dali and Wanda yeah. group. They I think they own AMC cinemas in America. They own all sorts of properties all over the world. So uh, he was in trouble. But then I think Jack Ma's case could be similar to his, where he was never charged. But they pretty much broke up a lot of the Wanda group and they cut it down to size. They had to sell a lot of the assets. Uh, and they basically didn't, thought it was becoming too big and it was becoming a risk because a lot of the expansion was fueled expansion. So the state wanted to take control over some parts of the Wanda empire. But he's fine in the sense that he, he, was, he had to assist with the process, but nothing happened to him. I would still say that's what's going to happen to Jack Ma. I think he's helping them with their probe into, Ant, into his financial uh, operations. They're probably going to clip his wings. But I'd be very, very surprised if he's going to be charged. I think that he's just lying low when he assists this process of, of, you know, curbing the power of his company. Just tell him to do what Malia did, dude. That's what we do, right? Nirav Modi, Malia, come on, just like leave yeah, the country. <laughs> the, the visa is quite, uh, I mean, accessible, yeah, that, uh, that golden <laughs> visa. I mean, it's no, like, been, uh, like two crores. Easy they have their uh, Malias and Nirav Modi's actually, and you know, they've been very, very aggressive in bringing them back. They, they, they launched this thing called, I think, Operation Fox Hunt which was uh, they deployed their people all over the world and they got all of these they got all of these absconding fugitives to come back. So it was really big news a few years ago. There, Malia was a guy called Lai Chang Shing, who was this billionaire and he fled uh, and a lot of his companies went bust and he was living in Canada and they brought him back. We don't know how, but I think for them, no trick is, I think there's nothing that they wouldn't do. I think one common thing they do is they get get after their family members in China, right? Which is, yeah. the, which is the biggest way to get people to cave and bring them back. I think what they did is that, you know, that back in, in, in the dark night, uh, they go and pick up that Chinese guy by the, by this plane. I think that's how they probably got him back. So that's team, probably. Yeah. I want to talk about sports after Saurabh is done asking his question. I keep forgetting that this is his stream and I don't know why I always do this. No, no, that's, a, that's, why, that's why you're here, man. To make this uh, many... full SNG-like with your no, domination. No, have... <laughs> no, no, no. I have way too many questions about sports as well. Uh, so, yeah, sure, yeah. But, but continue. Yeah. No, so there, there was such a, there's, there's a lot of fun stuff in the book also, which is, uh, which I, I gotta, I gotta talk about this. Okay. Where I think you, you uh, went to the, um, I think the communist party headquarters or whatever. And for APEC blue, was that, no, that was the, the sorry, that was just a security protocol for APEC blue. And you said the security arrangements were so extreme that in some 
areas residents were given a small payment to leave the city which is hilarious <laughs> it's like just go take a vacation and then i got to clarify this okay when you said hotels barely had supplies and curiously the establishment where i was staying couldn't serve any dish with potatoes or tomatoes security reasons a waiter shrugged <laughs> what is what is with potatoes and tomatoes well, as a security bizarre. risk yeah this happens when they have summits and i think uh, this i think this happened at the g20 summit in hangzhou where Hangzhou, incidentally, is a city where Jack Ma is from and where Alibaba is. It's a, it's a lovely city in eastern China. So they have the G20. What are property there. prices there? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. Better than Beijing, but yeah, better than Beijing. Okay. Uh, but uh, so it was crazy where the whole city was emptied. So I remember driving from the airport to the hotel, and the entire city was in darkness. All the apartment buildings were lights were off. and then we found out that they were they declared like a week holiday and they encouraged people Indeed. to leave because they didn't want like security risks for this G20 summit uh, and then so it was very bizarre where you couldn't travel anywhere in the city and um, i remember that uh, so i was working for india today tv at the time and for some reason i don't know why exactly but my editors wanted me to do a story about luxury cars in in hangzhou uh, so i had to do it uh, this is the day before the summit so i took my selfie stick and my iphone and i had to find luxury car showrooms and obviously the entire city was was closed so i had to like walk like kilometer after kilometer and find these showrooms that were somehow open and do a story about luxury cars there but the whole city was completely shut down and in my hotel there were things that you couldn't uh, order i remember that one thing they didn't have for some reason they didn't have plastic razors and and shaving cream so and i usually don't travel with it because of airport security in china and i remember that i didn't and i and i was there for four five days so i couldn't shave throughout this entire while covering this this g20 summit so it was a it was quite a bizarre thing because they thought it was a security risk for some reason to give journalists uh, plastic razors maybe they were just trying to boost the local economy and get like you to make sure that you get a shave from the people there and this is boosting the local economy <laughs> yeah, yeah. but uh, okay i have a couple of questions that are popping in from the chat which i like to say and then we got to take uh, nevels uh, <clears throat> sports question again if you're watching we almost uh, reached 1000 likes so please uh, hit the like button so we can hit those numbers a lot of people watching so please uh, go ahead and do you that you have to say smash like, that subscribe. like button smash, smash it. it friends smash it come on uh, don't don't do there's no firewall to the like button just do it Okay, uh, Dikshant. China is uh, not tracking your likes yet. <laughs> yeah. We we gotta come to that also. There's a particular city that uh, Anand mentioned in his book, which I I remember watching a video about. We come to that soon. Uh, Dikshant Singh Parmar has a question that you've actually answered in this book as well, but uh, uh, it's a good question. Hi, sorry, I've loved your content, giving bibliophiles a mental stimulation. Uh, can you ask Anand how's the standard of living in China compared to India? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't compare it in the sense that uh, if the economy is five times bigger uh, and you have a roughly a similar population, obviously you see that reflected in the standard of living. Uh, the most obvious difference to anyone, to any Indian who's lived in China, is the I think the quality of urban life is just really different. Uh, the infrastructure is astounding. Your day-to-day -day life in cities. I think the cities are a lot more livable uh, if you forgive the pollution, which is getting better. Uh, I just read yesterday that uh, Beijing's AQI average last year was something like seventy-eight compared to like two hundred in Delhi, uh, which is a lot better than when I was living there. But I think what I really enjoyed there were the cities were a lot livable, where in terms of the parks and public spaces, which we've really lost uh, here in India. I think the public spaces was something that. every city has a crazy number of parks and the waterways that they've kept in a decent condition 
Um, so this, I'd say the most obvious thing to say is the cities are a lot more livable. Uh, and in terms of standard of living, it's it's interesting where you don't have the the level of absolute poverty that you have in India, whether in the whether in rural China or in urban China. But the problem that they face is the income gap is probably bigger uh, in China than in India, only because the top one percent in China are just filthy rich. Yeah. So mm. so I'd say if you look at the bottom ten percent. The standard of living is so obvious where it's much, you'd be much better off being in the bottom 10% in China than in India. Uh, in terms of your housing, you don't have, I think they've done a great job, for example, in low-income housing in cities. You don't have a big population that's homeless in China. But the problem they have is the gap between the top and the bottom is probably even bigger than it is here. Uh, yeah, but with no, but yeah, with no purchasing ahead. power, right? With more purchasing power, despite that gap being so much if you live in the so. cities i think i would say so especially maybe without beijing shanghai being the exception where and real estate is huge <laughs> is, uh, i think it's beyond the pale for more but then i think it's similar to india as well where people where for people in their 30s and 40s it is impossible to buy property based on your own income and i think it's happening all over the world and and that's absolutely true in china as well where without your parents using their life savings to subsidize you it's it's impossible to buy a property okay i have one last question of super chat and then uh, we have to neville is uh, dying to ask his uh, sports question no i have like, many more now <laughs> dude there are too many questions i like listen i have so much notes in this book yeah. right where <laughs> oh my god we are competing now here is mine oh, this is I, have no- <laughs> <laughs> i have notes it's crazy and this yeah. by the way this section this 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 part is only from while y'all were talking can you imagine nice this is mine this is uh, this is all mine wow. which is like very meticulous notes okay uh, we have a question on mit solanki who says in general how would you quantify the information asymmetry amongst the people of china and the rest of the world great chat by the way smiley face that's a great question so, i don't think that that's the smiley face he's like that it's like that one so, yeah <laughs> no but it's a really good question because uh, i think we often don't get that uh, so all so much of the information there is mediated through censorship even though you have like vibrant social media like wechat and weibo the fact is that the things that get traction there are things that the government's kind of happy to allow so just to give you a small example where like i'm still on wechat and go through what friends of mine are posting right So I think a lot of people in China somehow during covid it really hit me that how they're living in such a parallel universe because I found that most people there have the view that the government did a great job in bringing everything under control by the summer they felt that China was leading the world and how they controlled covid-19 and they somehow felt that the world would be grateful or appreciative of how they've handled it and to me being here just showed that people are in such a parallel universe when there's such anti china sentiment in India all over the world throughout 2020 because of covid and then here because of the border as well right so but there everybody is of the view that you know they had handled it very very well they were leading the world in handling pandemics and the world was kind of looking at them awestruck and this is a narrative in the state media that most people would believe so uh, so there is a huge amount of information asymmetry of course it works both ways or i think some of the information that we get from there as well might not always be accurate but in china yeah. it's so acute because you don't have that many sources of information even if you have different media outlets a lot of the stuff that you get about india i think for for use india as an example it fits a stereotype where there's very little original reporting from china coming from here the few chinese journalists who live here work for state media so whatever they file is going to be unfortunately it's 
it's going to go through the what the government wants to portray about india so broadly speaking they like to show india as being kind of chaotic uh democracy that doesn't function very well they like to showcase uh for example india us closeness as something threatening to china so these are kind of themes you see um and i think one of the big tragedies is both here and there there's not much reporting about kind of like the ordinary lives of people and and how and so i think people are a lot in the dark about that and so i have had chinese friends who visit india over the years and they're always shocked by especially if they visit big cities right it's for them it's such a it's a complete contrast to the india that they experience um from their media and it works the other way around as well when i have indian friends visit china uh it shows i think the media on both sides are doing a pretty poor job uh i i i like you said it's it's so funny that uh, state controlled media tries to portray this because in one of your most recent uh, things in, in in the in your newsletter uh, about how uh, the us uh, is being portrayed with this current thing and there, there, there's a certain sense of and i'm going to use that word uh, there's certain sense of schadenfreude in in the way that uh, you were waiting know, that, to use that word in yeah. some convey you love bringing that word i was this is the fourth time i've spoken to you <laughs> and each time we do a live you you talk about property taxes and schadenfreude you have yeah. to bring it in schadenfreude <laughs> is my schadenfreude is 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 my basic life motto so uh so no there's a certain sense of so that that uh, even when they report on the us as state controlled journalists so whether they report on india state controlled journalists and they sort of create these uh, infallible cahoots uh, so to speak uh, is there um, is there a is there any sense of independent journalism that that sort of supersedes that that you can sort of find on the dark chinese web is that is there is there a possibility of that you know there was a there was a lot of it when i first moved there uh, it was great in olympics 2008 9 they were opening up and three or four chinese media outlets came up that were doing great stuff they still exist um there's one that also publishes in english uh, it's called saixin c a i x i n uh and they do really good reporting when they are allowed to uh i think they are fantastic independent journalists there who are waiting to do great work a lot of them end up leaving and go, going to the us or working for foreign media outlets as their researchers even though they are fantastic journalists uh occasionally the state allows this and it's interesting to see when wuhan happened when the outbreak happened in december i think the central government in beijing was feeling that you know they the story that they were getting from the local government was clearly not the reality so the cover up that happened throughout december and early january was essentially the local authorities in wuhan were feeding up numbers that didn't make any sense they were saying that the cases weren't growing at all throughout early january so at that stage it was interesting to see that i think the central government in beijing allowed chinese reporters from other provinces to go to wuhan and report so there's lots of excellent journalism that came out in chinese throughout january and february that were telling us about what happened in december how hospitals were being overcrowded how doctors were getting sick so obviously they knew this virus could go between people but the government wasn't saying that So I think it was a great reminder of how when allowed to do this watchdog role the media in China can do it but but then I think by March when the central government felt that it was more important to get the narrative under control bam there was another kind of clamp yeah uh, yeah a clamp down and it was back to just having the dispatches from Beijing so it's quite interesting that it does exist and it was a, it was doing a great job up until 2012 2013 but I think under Xi Jinping a lot of space for that is is is, is declined in a big way Okay. Uh just I I just move to uh I, I before I just move to sports I have one question. Do you know how they managed to pull down the AQI so considerably? Like did they put did they put economic sanctions on companies? Did they how, how did that happen? 
uh, i mean i know yeah. that the tax on a car in beijing is incredible but yeah. uh, outside of that um, yeah i think the biggest thing was it wasn't just one thing like there was a it was a coordinated uh, response in a city like beijing for example you know it's impossible to get a registration for a car so car registrations are capped every month and there's a lottery so you have to apply and i know people have waited for years and they never got a registration so they issue a fixed number of new car registrations every month and only with that can you uh, drive a car so and then uh, more than that uh, every day uh, there's a restriction on the on license plates so you can't take your car out one day a week um because they look at the last number of your license plate and every day uh, two digits are are not allowed so so they limit traffic that way and the other big thing they did which really is kind of not a great solution which was close down a lot of coal uh plants in the vicinity of beijing and shift them inland so they just shifted that shifted that problem to people in western interiors of china <laughs> but broadly they have done a lot of cleaning up their coal plants where the emission standards that they have for coal plants are much higher than they were 10 years ago uh, and you have to and there they really regulate in a tight way where they monitor emissions from factories and make sure they up to a degree one thing that i think we can pay attention to in terms of the farmers protests that are going on as well what they did with crop burning was interesting i visited in the book i talk about visiting a village outside of beijing and one thing that wheat bur- uh, crop burning was a huge problem stubble burning every winter so what they did was they created this really organized campaign where they would try and uh, the local authorities would buy the stubble off of farmers and then try and sell that to i think they were trying to either use it for ethanol or or, or something else so they had this pro- they had this very coordinated pro- uh, campaign of buying the stubble from farmers because you can't blame i mean here we we get very infuriated at stubble burning but oftentimes they have no no way yeah, to dispose yeah. of the, the the stocks of the of the crops so i think it's a multi-pronged thing that they did yeah which is still funny because they still had a 10 day traffic jam in beijing uh, despite having all so you can just imagine and with the highways they have i mean despite that they still had a so in the, in the book itself i think anand you mentioned it quite a lot about the 10 day jam which sort of provoked them to start doing a lot more for everything else and it's so interesting how odd even keeps popping up the audience <laughs> system which delhi had it keeps popping up where it's like and it was so interesting because i, I, I remember you saying this in the book where uh or so or even this they tried it and then a few months later they discovered that the pollution was up because people were now buying two cars and i was exactly like right. <laughs> this is like yeah uh no, so and, happened, and the interesting thing is they found that i interview one of the researchers and so she was telling me this and she said that that's why they recommended the government to abandon it because they found that they looked at many cities around the world that tried and failed like yeah. mexico city the same thing happened where second car purchases were going through the roof the minute they put this in so yeah so i don't know i, I think in india delhi kind of i think became kind of like a gimmick to say that you know we're doing this that and the other but without like a very strong policy rationale behind it but in delhi in delhi every family anyway already owns more than one go, car yeah. so <laughs> as a result i mean the chances of you having that yeah, uh, yeah because they need anything. another car to bang into right so they need to create that scenario <laughs> dude imagine in the garage <laughs> आज किसी को नहीं ठोका यार तू कर लेना अच्छा अच्छा बट यूनिटी like a c 
का sticker, nice. so they can just put it on the nine, so it becomes an eight. Uh, at the bottom corner of the nine to make it an eight, and then they drive. So they've changed their car number, which is not yeah. only jugad but also illegal. Illegal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so funny because my landlord in Beijing. I remember one day he uh, was. I, I came downstairs to the apartment building and I saw him because I didn't have a car, so he would park in the slot. And I saw that he was taking mud and putting it on his license plate. And then I asked him, "What are you doing?" And then it turns out that he was because it's based on the last digit. He was like coating the last digit. Of his license plate with mud, which is so that it's nice. like a universal thing. That wow. yeah, but at least at least mud sounds like like probable that it was blurred out. Like when you're when you're consciously going out there and putting that C, that makes That's it like hey, immediately mud. You can say hey, it happened to be in such a coincidental place where the mud <laughs> went only on that one digit. <laughs> very very well pointed mud it was. Okay, we have a question from Anirudh Agnihotri on Super Chat. Thanks a lot for your chat, man. Uh, Anirudh asks, like Paytm, did Chinese companies make more investments in India? How compromised is data from such companies as per Chinese law slash government control? Okay, that's an interesting. Bro, our data is compromised without Chinese intervention. So please, I don't, I don't think Chinese intervention is needed. Sorry, sorry, Alad, yeah. you can answer that question. No, it's a it's a good uh, it's a good topic. And so when I moved back in 2018, I spent a year uh, doing this project for Brookings India in Delhi. So we came out with a report. If you're interested, in May 2020, that looks at Chinese investments in India. And what we tried to do was map out all the Chinese investments in different sectors. and the fastest growing one was the investments that they had in the tech sector in stakes of companies and alibaba and tencent were two of the biggest investors and i think roughly each has a portfolio of around 3 billion dollars in india give or take a little bit and, and is, uh, is it mostly fintech or is it yeah is it... right mostly okay. uh, fintech and uh, i think that uh, ptm was interesting because i think it's the biggest investment and uh, there have been so many questions about paytm alibaba data and i think paytm has come out quite forcefully denying everything but i was always struck because when i tried to use the paytm app it was such a clone of alipay where i because i use alipay in china and i found that paytm the colors the fonts it was like a complete replica <laughs> of alipay which i was so shocked by Mm-hmm. um and so i think there's a lot of strategic sort of relationship between paytm and and alibaba but they insist that the data is only stored in india mm. uh and, and none of the data goes uh to china so but but then i asked somebody the government mm-hmm. is there any way to verify it and they were like well not really yeah obviously not because so, i mean <laughs> so anyway, i mean yeah. sovereignty of cyberspace uh, okay uh, sorry so i'll ask you a couple of questions about sports which i'm most curious about so uh, before i move into the most uh, most wanted question which is about uh, ozil and the uigers and 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 what happened to arsenal and 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 things like that uh, in china if you look at mostly china in the, in, the, in the olympics they have a lot of success when it comes to uh individual slash two team two players kind of sports right uh when it comes to team sports say uh, you know they're not they're not excellent at hockey uh they're not they're decent at volleyball but i mean again it's a bronze it's not which which for china for for china is pocket change a bronze is not something that they're interested in right uh but their their golds and silvers and and world records and things like that come from individualistic sports and this is obviously i'm assuming years of not working in a team and being told exactly what to do and so you're very individualistic and competitive in nature uh i'm i'm is there any other historical reason why sporting wise the country a put so much emphasis on sports is it because 
in in again you know uh, i want to say like 20 years ago 30 years ago it was it was the only way for that display of strength in an international forum uh you know where you know oh, the olympics i mean that's really uh, where they would be or is there any other reason and also this 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 very pertinent thing of individual uh, sports being such a big thing in china uh, it's a nice question by the way like yeah, it's, it's because it's so interesting question. that like a communist country yeah. can't coordinate in a team <laughs> yeah i mean they'll do they'll do swimming they'll do they'll be great yeah. at like you know synchronized swimming they'll be great at badminton uh, they're outstanding at table tennis but i think it's a group of four group of three that sort of work and and historically also if you looked at it those two people who have sort of made it or the or the or the, or the doubles players who've made it have been playing since they were four so yeah. you're literally have been playing with each other since they were four it's not like you know they've a grown older and partnered with different people so you literally know ki this guy knows th- this is his shot or her shot straight up so is there any reason why that's so pertinent and and of, of course the historical relevance of having this show of strength in the olympics and then i'll ask you about football yeah i think that it's it's a great question and as you said it's the opposite of what you would think right but but i think that uh, i think part of it's just legacy because i was going through team sports in my brain right now and thinking of a list of them and i think none of them have been really uh in terms of popular sports in china that kids love and been playing since they were kids uh, i think volleyball is interesting i think women's volleyball volleyball became really popular in china because uh women's volleyball i think they won a gold they won a gold yeah and um, and i think there's a and that became a legacy sport so kids play volleyball and they're quite good at it but i think if you look at hockey football basketball uh i think that i think the most popular sports have always been uh obviously ping pong and badminton they've loved watching that uh hockey nobody watches it uh cricket as well it never caught on there neither did baseball like it did in japan basketball and, and football uh i'd say the only two sports that are really 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 popular in china and yeah. in china they make jokes about how bad their football team is uh because it's the team has been like atrociously bad yeah um, but they're buying pretty much every football in the world yeah. like buying literally buying uh in terms of their uh, the which is, is also uh, the sorry is fantastic uh, the local league compared to our league right in terms of attendance it's crazy yeah. uh, so i lived opposite the worker stadium in beijing uh, and uh, so i would go to a lot of games of, of uh, the beijing club beijing goan and it was like 20000 attendance was insane and fanatics they had clubs they have songs it's like england they have a culture yeah. and like i am mad about football as well but hmm. they have a culture of and going to the game is like a experience right so but unfortunately they never been good but i think why they were so invested in it is a lot of the soviet mentality uh like i think soviet union before uh people is it a disciplinarian thing was it I a discipline about national pride and nationalism okay. I okay. think the Soviet Union I think at the time was also about competing with the West to kind of prove that their model uh their model was as legitimate as uh, it was pretty much a, a race like anything so else. it was like a show of strength in in, yeah, in that sure. sense yeah it was like going to the moon it was like a space a sports program was like a space program a way to show yeah. your national power and your and your national strength uh, but I think now it's interesting where I think individualism is something that they they value in the sense where i think if you look at lena the tennis player has been a great example of someone who was a product of the system but she broke out of the system she said it's not working for me she went to the us she got her own coach and she's been very vocally outspoken about people not letting the system crush their inspiration and that she's yeah. one of the most popular sports people in china so i think with chinese born in the 80s and 90s their idols are 
individual stars and people there i think basketball probably is the number one sport in china in terms of what people watch and i think mm. for this generation it's a lot different from those in the 50s and 60s you were given a sport you were like okay you have this physical your physical attributes are such you have to play volleyball your physical attributes are such you have to play ping pong there was no question yeah, yeah, yeah. Of choice involved so yeah. Yeah. Okay. I remember I, I, reading this. Sorry, I remember reading this, and I was like quite, quite fascinated by the fact that it was purely on the basis of your physical yeah. uh, outlook at at the age of like less than eight, where yeah. you're like, hey, you you work for this, which is quite interesting. You know, I mean, talking about this whole thing, my favorite story about this is got to be Qatar, where uh, where uh, where Qatar basically just found a bunch of African athletes who were sort of on the cusp. and they offered them citizenship and now uh, the uh, and it worked out nicely because we're getting 5000 dollars a month for life or something yeah. like wow. that and they were like dude of course we're going to take this up man and i'm like this is good it works for everybody you are uplifting like a bunch of african athletes who probably don't have access to that sort of facility and easy access to finances Uh, so and also people, not necessarily making it into the national teams or English clubs or things like that. I mean, exactly, China currently, yeah. for example, is picking up players at at incredible costs. It's it's I don't even know how are they how uh, is the is but the Chinese them football league profitable for for the football pay league for their for their for football clubs. league right yeah, for is, their and clubs the, and their clubs because of that I think uh, for example Guangzhou is a I think it's now an Asian superpower if you follow Asian football yeah uh, I think they got Lippi Marcelo Lippi as a coach and they won the I think they've won the they Asian have Oscar league from Chelsea for like some yeah. insane money Drogba went, Drogba went, went, went there um, yeah. I think Benitez is now who I've always like worshipped as a football manager he's he So one of the first stories I want to do when I go back to China is track him down in Dalian and interview Rafa Benitez, who's now in China. Oh, nice. uh, so, so they're throwing a lot of money, but but in terms of what you're saying, I think there's one Brazilian who they are looking to naturalize, and I think there was some debate in China. There was some pushback to that. I think where some people felt they shouldn't just find Brazilians and naturalize them and improve the national team that way. I think a lot of people in China were actually not in favor of that route. Okay, uh, and now coming to uh, no, but even on cricket, by the way, it's an interesting thing uh, because obviously within the within cricket Australia, the BCCI and and uh, ECB, which effectively controls uh, the, the the ICC, uh, within these three, they've very clearly made it obvious that they don't want it to become an Olympic sport. And um, yeah. and because you don't want to make it an Olympic sport, China suddenly not interested because China technically yeah. would have a would 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 I mean they can. Pretty much bang out a team, I would assume in five years. They would, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they would no, bang out it's a team. It's such a great point, and in fact, in the book, I I have a profile. The last part of the book is called Portraits, where I profile six people, and the last portrait of the book is the captain of the women's cricket team in China. Uh, oh. And I spent and I spent some time with the women's cricket team in China, and I had such a blast. There were these amazing young girls who who only picked up the bat for five years, uh, and they were doing so well. Uh, they came. They the, they got to the bronze playoff uh, of the Asian uh, Cricket Championships, the ACC Cricket Championships. The women's team is doing really well, but the biggest thing, uh, the men's team isn't doing great. But the but the biggest thing that they told me was what you said, uh, because of the fact that it's not an Olympic sport, the funding that they get at every level is level, like is. nothing compared to what Olympic sports get. Small example. So I went to the training camp, uh, and um, so they were practicing on astroturf, and across the street. Was an actual green grass where the rugby team was practicing. So they told me that the rugby team was on astroturf on two, two years before. But then, when the rug when rugby became an Olympic sport, Olympic they were sport. taken from the astroturf and given actual grass. Yeah. 
so yeah. so 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 interesting how i mean they'll absolutely be able to bang out a team yeah. because uh, i mean and 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 it's in the interest of the ecb the the, the cricket australia and bcci to keep it uh, within it because then the minute it becomes an, an an olympic sport it has to be governmentalized and there has to be government oversight and there's there's all of that that sort of starts to come in and you can't no longer be a private pity, body yeah but I, like for me it's a pity just because i mean india could get a gold and, and also because uh, when the asian games happened in guangzhou i went down to guangzhou and they built a cricket stadium because china was hosting cricket for the first time right and mm. everybody sent teams to the asian games except india uh, yeah pakistan did uh, sri lanka did and with mainly under 23 but with some stars so pakistan mm. bangladesh uh, sri lanka all sent teams to the asian games but the bcci didn't which was a bit of a shame yeah it is uh, okay moving on to the last sports question about uh, mr odzil from arsenal um now uh, you know what, what by the way anavel i love this that you have uh, that even in this you have found a football angle <laughs> to connect it to the no, epl no, there is this there is, is commitment Yeah. No, no, there is, but there's a very clear yeah. angle because. Nice. Um, so there's a there's, so there's a just for your reference uh, and and people watching on the stream, uh, Arsenal has uh, Arsenal has a midfielder called uh, Mesut Ozil who's uh, actually Turkish but ha- has some other roots and then he's gotten banned from one country, gotten banned from another country, then Germany banned him, then now he's only <laughs> English but even Arsenal banned him because Arsenal doesn't care about him because he had a fight with Arsenal or whatever. Now. uh he is uh he is actually turkish but with uh you know had a german uh german citizenship etc um now with his uh turkish uh, uh heritage he sort of spoke up uh, against the the persecutions of the persecution of the wages in uh, in in china the, the the muslim community that was being uh, uh you know uh, subjugated uh, in in that country uh, now uh, after that uh as uh, china almost banned the e- have they banned the epl or have they banned just arsenal games or uh, you know is it frowned upon to be an arsenal fan or whatever because the implication of that was that arsenal lost an audience of 1.3 whatever 1.2 billion 1.3 billion or how many arsenal fans that exist in um, thing and the epl lost it and then that meant arsenal had to uh, uh, you know almost uh, put that many sank that much sanctions on Ozil, which sort of screws up his uh, ability to play, and now he's looking at a deal to move to Fenerbahce. But outside of that, so what is this impact? How much of this is geopolitical in nature? What was actually banned? What happened? And 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 uh, thing was it just Arsenal games? Because that's what we heard. I think so, but I think it's quite interesting the whole case. I think uh, the New York Times had a great piece that you haven't read it that explains the whole saga in October uh, called the Erasure of, of Mesut Ozil, which I recommend. and so i think the ozil case for people who follow the epl was a bit funny in the sense where i think he was already had issues with arsenal he wasn't playing i think it was pretty clear that he didn't get along with the manager arteta i think that was clear uh, but i think it was brave of him to speak out uh, and this was a second big incident where before that uh, it happened with the nba where the manager of one of the nba teams had spoken out about hong kong had tweeted pretty much saying that uh, you know that they were in, uh, expressing solidarity with protests in hong kong and there was a huge backlash where nba games were stopped in china and it was a and for for the nba china is a huge 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 market yeah, so i think yeah. the nba then backpedaled and then you had lebron james doing this terrible interview where he was kind of saying um, wishy washy basically saying that he didn't know enough to comment about it and basically not wanting to say anything which shows that when people speak out there are economic repercussions so none of the leagues whether it's the nba or whether it's the epl want this kind of uh, thing and they i think they actively 
suppressing people from speaking out but obviously the hypocrisy is is there because you have players taking a knee right before mm. every english football game they take a Got knee uh, but somehow it's okay to speak about that not okay to speak about this i think for urzel he was anyway in the dock and i think this kind of probably <laughs> gave them even more reason to kind of freeze him out even more yeah. what i found interesting was after urzel spoke out you had griezmann of barcelona yeah. i think he ended his contract with huawei the chinese company because of the Uyghurs being persecuted in Xinjiang. But then I I followed it. I, I don't quite remember, but I don't think there was such a backlash for La Liga. I don't know why that is. Uh, when you had Griezmann kind of cancel this uh, contract with Huawei. So I don't know if there are wheels within wheels, if there were other issues going on between the EPL and China. From my own experience living in China, the EPL has never has struggled to break into China. Uh, I could never watch the games on free-to-air. It was always streaming on one strange channel that you had to find and then pay money for yeah. <laughs> but la liga and and the the serie a were doing very very well like serie a is hugely popular there because it's it's on the local tv because it's also EPL, boring football uh. <laughs> but for some reason the epl never caught on there and it's like uh, it's it's a strange thing where i think they've tried really hard and they're still trying but but it seems to be one of those jinx things Okay. It's interesting okay. to talk so about all of this uh, banning, and because I remember the NBA situation way bigger than the Arsenal one. NBA was because I think they yeah. literally had to backtrack and apologize. I think South Park did an entire episode on this, if I remember correctly, <laughs> where they just spoke literally about how how much power China has. Where, like, I mean, this is uh, this is the uh, sudden advantage of population, right? Where you are like, listen, you say anything against this, we're just going to immediately uh, 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 sort of stop watching what you do. Which is what's so, happening here. I see similarities yeah. here on that point where, yeah, there were people's tolerance of criticism. I think in China it is a government pressuring, but also people, right? Anyone says anything bad about China, and everyone gets furious on social media, and and people's tolerance for any criticism, I think, is just is diminishing everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have. Uh, uh, I have a couple of questions. One statement, which obviously Neville, I'm sure you are waiting for the statement, is Om Charan has given a super chat saying, "Nice of you to bring Kuldeep Yadav while he's on the sidelines for the test." So there you go. By the Kuldeep Yadav might play the fourth test, given the fact that India has 87 injured players, so that might yeah. happen. <laughs> Dude, we have an entire we have an entire reserve team that's injured. <laughs> yeah, I, I I put out dude I put out the tweet yesterday where I said that uh, Australia India injured 11. uh whatever david warner rohit sharma uh, will pokowski ravinder jadeja ishan sharma ishan sharma uh, whatever whatever and then 12th man ravinder jadeja because he's been injured twice right yeah. and, pe- and people are like dude how you can't read or like you don't get the joke no no <laughs> this is injured twice <laughs> can i ask you a can i ask you a really stupid question so there's this guy who is uh, uh, who's a who's the inspiration for funsuk wangdu in uh, uh say his name is sonam wangchuk right he's yeah. a he's a professor and he and he's doing a lot of these videos on on youtube and about like you're know, super clickbaity in in the sense that find out why china is banning me in their country and 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 uh, things like that and and it's obviously there is there was a certain amount of wow from him because he lived in leh he lives in leh he lives in ladakh and he has this whole like you know uh you uh, would assume he would have the knowledge Uh, yeah. of yeah. of of the area and and the uh, the thing I, i i don't know if you're familiar with his work at all but there's a lot of like uh, you know cross over it's almost like you know sending goods over sending uh, food over sending stuff over which is sort of crushing 
local uh, economies within Leh, Ladakh, and, and and stuff like that. So, what is that? What is that impact? I mean, how how true is it? Is it is it is it a real thing? And is it a real threat that we should be worried about sending over uh, stuff that are just necessarily? I'm saying like copies of Maggie and things like that. But uh, uh, how how much how much truth is there to what he's saying? What is the impact Leh, Ladakh? That and oh shit, we should talk about the military situation. We have seven minutes with you, but we will hurry up. No, I, uh, I I did follow some of his statements on the during the whole boycott China campaign. I think during the summer last year, I think there's two things to it. Where I think there is a real issue. Where I think there's no doubt that local manufacturers, local industries find it very difficult to compete. Right, when you have goods come in um, and at such low prices all over, um, and I think that I, to be honest, I I don't know the local situation where he is. Uh, in Leh and how they've been impacted. But I have heard in other places, um, I've heard in the Northeast, uh, I remember uh, hearing from local officials there uh, that they were concerned about, uh, I don't know how big the numbers are, but they were uh, concerned about young kids who are going to across the border uh, to China, to Yunnan to study and things like that. And there was, a, and there was apparently an attempt to kind of, uh, because of economic uh, opportunities that they saw, right? But I think he has a legitimate point. But how do we do more to protect local manufacturers who have been decimated? Um, but the but the harder thing is, as I was reporting for much of last year, these boycott campaigns have never really worked. Well, yeah. uh, because uh, I think the big problem is, if you look at the, the nature of the goods we import from China, the basket of goods, the kind of stuff that he's talking about, uh, small goods, uh, cheap goods that have really flooded the Indian market, are a tiny chunk of that. A uh, very, very small percentage. Of course, they have a huge impact on manufacturers here. But the biggest uh, goods that we import are those by big Indian companies. It's like telecom equipment, power equipment, huge sort of machinery for construction projects, things like that. That's what's driving our dependence on China. It's not the so, USB fan. That's no, what we're saying. Not, yeah. It's not the USB fan. But, 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 by, but I shouldn't, but, but by saying that, uh, I mean, it's not that we should make light of the fact that those who are making small end goods here are finding it difficult, right? But I think our problem with China goes beyond that. I think that's often lost, where it's it's so going to be very difficult for us to break out of it because uh, our whole telecom revolution, for example, was made possible. Rates came down because we were getting cheap equipment from China, which would have cost five times more than what we got from Europe. And they didn't care whether the equipment was as good or not, but it helped us expand the network in a way that we couldn't have done earlier, right? So, and obviously there were some benefits to that. So I think it's a really complicated situation and for India, it has to be a long-term plan where you have to identify which are the areas where, which are strategically important where you're importing equipment. Can you find a way to source it from elsewhere? Or is there a way for us to make it? It's, but unfortunately, a lot of it gets lost and people are like, you know, boycott A, B, or C. Yeah. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's, very, it's going to be a very long-term difficult is task. There, would there be merits in almost creating like a, like a you, you know, in the olden days, again, you had something, you had union, unions had a lot of power. Um, and I think even today, if you try to try to get into a union space, the government can't do that because there's a heavy union push, right? Uh, and we don't have that in, in, in small scale industries. We don't have that when it comes to entrepreneurs and, and, and small business. I uh, think would unionization in that sense sort of work like as comics also uh, so when we don't get paid for gigs uh, i'm saying uh, would unionization make 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 sense or is it is it is it detrimental to our form of government and economic policies so yeah i should preface what i'm saying by someone who doesn't know these issues uh, but i did interview uh, biswajit dar at jnu a while ago on this exact same thing 
Um, <laughs> and uh, so he's a guy that knows his stuff as an economist, which I'm not. And the point that he told me was, which I thought was quite convincing, was he said that he thought the mid, the longest, the, the longest time the mid here was that workers have too much power in courts, which is why we are not getting uh, the kind of FBI that China was getting. But I think he made it a good point to me when he said that it was more about skills. And that's something I heard a lot of, from Indian companies who have factories in China. And I talk about that in the book where they think the biggest advantage they have was in skilling people. Uh, people just don't invest in a country because labor is cheaper there or it's easier, easier to fire workers there. They invest in a country if they have trained workers who can do X, Y, and Z, which is why Apple still has factories in China. Uh, in the book, I quote Tim Cook, who says, uh, who, who gave a speech where he said the biggest myth was Apple was manufacturing in China because of cost. He said the, the reason why they manufacture in China is because they can find engineers and tooling engineers and skilled workers on a scale that they can't find anywhere else. So I yeah. think it's a, we have to look at that first. Uh, and I think that often we tend to focus on the fact that you hear businesses in India say, oh, uh, we need to be able to fire people easier. I think that's really and that and that's and that's also funny, right? Because it, it, you can clearly tell that skill would outweigh uh, uh, economics, because uh, it would be so difficult to do business in China with a communist setup. Number two, it would also be difficult because they they, they don't speak English. So your factory manager is also Chinese, who's taking instructions from another guy, who's taking instructions from another guy. Uh, whereas if you look at India, India is. Uh, has an English speaking population, definitely more than China. Uh, and it would be easier to manufacture here, but it, 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 it yet is difficult it's, to do so. That upskilling is needed. It's, uh, I mean, which is what I was surprised by with the, uh, and, and I think your book answered the question of why boycott China doesn't work as a thing is because the sort of reliance we have on them, not only from, because we also mentioned FDI briefly. Like I, I mean, I think the it's come mo much more to the limelight about how much Chinese uh, companies have invested in India, uh, but the numbers are crazy. And even with regard to like I, the uh, biggest trade uh, uh, between it, it, biggest India's trader is China and vice versa, uh, yeah. which comes to another thing, which is the cultural thing. Which somebody asked a question, and I want to connect this to this, which is uh, Anirudh Agnihotri asked a question: Why some Indian movies perform so well in China? What cultural relatability do they have with these movies? And this Great is question. connected to the fact that I didn't know till I read your book that uh, Bollywood's biggest uh, uh, external American. market is China. I had no idea yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so it's a good question. Even I don't like what 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 is it that they're looking for, or is it just the uh, the song and dance which is appealing, or what is the story? Yeah, no, it's so Amir Khan. I, it is Amir Khan. I think a lot of it is Amir Khan. And I think that I was shocked to find that I think Dangal and Secret Superstar they both made more than a thousand crores in China. And I think they made yeah. more in wow. China. I should check, but I think Dangal may have made, made more, more in China and then it didn't in India. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes, it did. Uh, and that's because of the fact that they have so many multiplexes there. Uh, I think there are a lot of themes that, that work. I think one reason is because they don't find a lot of these socially inspiring themes from Chinese directors um, that as much as they would like. I think they find that I mean, they're great movies coming from Chinese directors, some of which don't make it to the big screen only because they limits the, the government wants positive themed movies always to make it to the screens. So a lot of these movies, even if they have positive themes, they do like many of his movies do cast a very sort of sharp light on problems in society. Right. Um, and I think that's why they people really like Dangal in terms of the fact that I think it related to a lot of women in China. Uh, and girls in China, but the fact that even if on many levels, I think uh, women in China are much more empowered than they are in India on every statistic that you see uh, in terms of whether it's labor force participation or education uh, or income. 
but i think there's still so many sort of historical uh, prejudices uh, that that continue and that's why dangal was so successful that so many people uh, uh, tell me they watched it multiple times and in the book one of the people i uh, in my portraits besides the cricketer i i profile the the president of the amir khan fan club in china this girl who started this she started on her own and i think now it has like 100000 members and they're all over china and they have different branches and and things like that um so so he i think part of it is an amir khan phenomenon where uh, i asked her is it something about bollywood but she told me what you said she said it's it's more about him but just because i mean like one hong kong actor doesn't mean i like all of hong kong cinema right uh but i think uh some of the others have found it tough i think amir khan has also invested in china he's been visiting every year he has an account on chinese social media uh so he's been quite smart in 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 reaching out to them no and it's not just that also right like from 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 just the bollywood lens what he does is he makes sure that he uh he dubs it with the finest actors there yes, uh, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't just do like a sort of like you know he doesn't just put like random voices onto a thing he will actually think and and those guys are voice actors so they're acting the dubbing scene rather than you know uh, things like that he he invests in the production there he puts money into shooting trying to shoot things there and and uh, doing a lot of like appearances there and things like that uh, but it is but it is it is it is amir in that sense i mean chandni chowk to china didn't do well there so i'm saying uh, <laughs> it is it is amir so, i think there's a, I, there's a trend of uh, socially important themes do well like i think uh, english english did well i think that uh, a couple of other movies that had education themes did well uh, but then like doom 2 and doom 3 kind of sank without a trace so but so the other one <laughs> no 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 doom, but but the doom series for example didn't have amir but if you look at that disaster which was pirates of the caribbean with amir khan and amitabh bachchan the i forgot the name of it thugs of hindustan uh, thugs of hindustan thugs did pretty well in china now really? uh, that's that's an amir khan thing it pretty well i'm not wow. saying it broke it broke box office records but it did pretty well in china so i'm saying it's about recovering uh, recovering your money now for example sharukh is really big in countries outside of uh, china he's also the second biggest in china so um in that sense there's there is uh, bollywood's biggest export oh, yeah. is china yeah absolutely wow but it's uh, quite interesting to know that it's like it's essentially one one dude who's made it happen right like even even like uh, when you're talking about uh, which i thought was an no raj kapoor made it in russia when when raj kapoor was there russia but he made a, he made the same he made the same initiative same impact. he attempted yeah but he same. he 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 worked at it it didn't yeah, happen yeah, overnight absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah much yeah. like amir khan but um, uh, uh, what i thought it was interesting anant about this book was that when you said the exchange of like the fdis uh, the amount china is investing in india and, and vice versa whatever the attempts are being made you literally said that it's it's uh, it's not because of the governments it's just because of individuals and companies which i thought was so interesting because you would assume that they had there was some some impact with like she and modi or something like that but it was just it just happened Is yeah it? i think they would like to claim it but i think a lot of the stuff that for example alibaba and tencent investments which are the two biggest companies investing i think it was part of them wanting to invest in tech in emerging markets so it was uh, stuff that they did uh, of their own and i think even xiaomi's success in india was not something that the government uh, wanted particularly it just kind of happened uh, but i think now the government role is kind of putting an end to this i think th- throughout last year i think india has become a little concerned about this kind of money coming in so they amended the fti rules in april last year yeah. uh, and i think there's and i think ch- there is a little bit of a slowing down now 
but you're right in the sense that I think a lot of this happened with the Chinese private sector, or I should say private sector and ports, because kind of a private sector with, with an asterisk. But I think most of it came via them. We should just call it P sector because it could be party or people. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, like in China, they have a, they call it uh, for NGOs are there. There's a term called gongos, G-O-N-G-O, which is like a government operated, non-governmental organization. organization. So there should be like an equivalent of that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like I, 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 like, so I, I like, I like a government, uh, then more than NGO because that, like, you know, where the money is going directly. Okay. Um, we have a couple of, uh, super chats, last two super chats. I know that Anand has just 10 minutes more. So I'll try and take these last two and we'll get one question from Neville in as well. Uh, Kuku Chiku says, finally, when I got chance, I'm and I'm late to stream, by the way, I am Taklia too for a while. Same pinch, not interested in cricket at all. But we are talking about China. But Dude, also, can I just say something? There's a guy in the chat at some point who has said, mad respect for you, Taklia. I don't understand how he can call you Taklia and have mad respect. But <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Okay, we have a question from Prathamesh. Uh, thanks a lot for your super chat, Prathamesh. Again, if you're watching, please like. There's about 1,500 people watching. So please like Tokto so more people can join in. Last couple of questions to Anant. Uh, Prathamesh asks, hello, Anant. What are we expecting in terms of U.S.-China relations post-Trump and the pandemic, is India going to earn some jobs from that? And that's been the perception for a while with regard to COVID that we've been thinking that, hey, uh, globally, there's been this anger towards China, blah, 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 and India's going to win out. But so far, has that actually happened? Uh, and also what he asked about U.S.-China relations. Yeah, I think that uh, I don't think there's going to be a big change. Uh, I know a lot of uh, Trump fans are worried that they think that he's taking China on and I think Trump has created this uh, myth that he's the only one that can confront China. And he's, I think he came up with this Beijing Biden nickname in the campaign. But I think if you look at the people that Biden has appointed, I think all of them are like seasoned, uh, long time serving uh, State Department people. And I don't think they're under any illusion, frankly, about China. And I don't think there's going to be a big change in US-China confrontation. I'd be very, very surprised uh, and in fact, I think he'll be even more outspoken on some things like Hong Kong and human rights, which Trump wasn't really interested in. At one stage, I think Trump said he was fine with what they were doing in Xinjiang. He wasn't really bothered by it. So I think you would see them. Uh, I think they would still go hard on trade because for Democrats as well, they've historically Democrats have been harder on protecting U.S. jobs and trade than Republicans have. Um, so I think both on trade and human rights, they're going to continue as they are. I don't think there's going to be a big change. Uh, as far as where India benefits as, uh, with the new change in government, I would hope, I don't know immigration-wise how it's going to pan out because Trump has been bad for H-1B visas, for immigration. Now you have, I think there are raised expectations that there'll be some easing of that, especially because of the VP. But but I think that ultimately they have their own concerns in the US and I don't know if there's going to be a big change there either. For India, uh, I think the on the defense front, there's been huge gains over the last four years with this uh, downturn in US-China relations and with the downturn in India-China relations, uh, I think the US has been wanting, willing to do more with India on the military front and India has been willing to do more as well, more so than in the past. Um, in terms of economy front, I don't know. Uh, ultimately, I've always had the belief that until we get our own house in order, no one's going to invest in you because they don't want to, it usually doesn't pan out that they invest in you because they are taking, they don't want to invest somewhere else. You have to have your own logic, right? Uh, when when jobs are moving out of China, a lot of them ended up going to Bangladesh and Indonesia and Thailand. Uh, it's not that every job that left China, it's not that every low-end manufacturing industry that left China came to India, which we assumed, which people here assumed. 
you have to create the right incentives and you have to send the right signals. Uh, you have to say, on the one hand, we say, we're saying that we want supply chains to relocate to India. On the other hand, we are withdrawing from things like the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a Asian trading block. So a company that wants to move out from China, will they want to go to India? Will they want to go to another country where they have access to an Asian trading block? These are things that yeah. we have to we have. To I mean, even our, well. even our participation in BRIC has deteriorated over the last, uh, you know, uh, in over the last few uh, 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 years. That the the amount of investment we put in even in BRIC is just not not a thing. So I, there I seems don't know to be like a bit of a yeah. I, I don't know. There seems we're dilly dallying in that. Like, there's a contradiction between us saying that we want more foreign investment and between us saying that we want companies to relocate and come here. But also, I think by by speaking about self-reliance a lot, uh, they may it might not be a great connotation to out investors elsewhere because self-reliance kind of signals something else. Uh, self-reliance, uh, not wanting to be part of free trade agreements, all things that uh, India has said recently. Uh, I think there should be there's there should be some consistency. Well, Neville, let's have one last question from you. Uh, I think uh, Anand has to bounce should, in six minutes. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering: should we make it like a stupid one, or should we make? <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it to Anand. Anand, you decide. Stupid one or attempt, or us attempting to be insightful. <laughs> I leave it to you. Uh, uh, no, he's put the ball back in your court. Huh? Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I'm. You know what? I'm actually. I'm actually curious about just to understand um, the geopolitics of the 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 the, the little top summit of India. uh with the investment in with the in sorry not investment the interest in 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 kashmir whether it is pakistan occupied kashmir or what we are now starting to call chinese occupied kashmir or uh you know the the siach and belt and 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 that little trifecta of you know the afghanistan uh, uh overlap with china and the pakistan overlap with china, you know just all of that and we have age raw agents who are hanging out in afghanistan and all of this thing can you just put put just just the i think the The, the the dummies version of what's happening in that uh, thing like dummy 101 uh, just that just so that we like there's some context to whatever we read henceforth no i think that uh, so in, in the book i do talk a little bit about the history of the boundary dispute and obviously china is a big part of the kashmir problem as well because of aksai chain um, which uh, china has occupied and has been holding um, and i think that it's two different things pakistan occupied kashmir versus aksai chain i would to to people who want a as you said a very simple version of it i would look at both separately they both have different histories uh, they both have uh, i think india's relations with pakistan india's relations with china are still very different for all the china pakistan closeness i think since 1947 broadly it's been on a parallel track uh, especially over the last 20 25 years where india has wanted to engage with china while trying to keep the boundary peaceful our relations with pakistan have been very very different from relations with china the line of control with pakistan has always been active it's a very interesting mirror situation where the india pakistan border the line of control we know where the line of control runs right it's been demarcated but it is violent there's shelling that happens very very frequently there are deaths that happen very very frequently but it's very interesting on the china side the line of actual control the lac has never been demarcated but it has been broadly peaceful from 1975 until 2020 um and it's so it was very interesting that we were able to keep the peace even though it was undemarcated um but i think the problem now for us is after 2020 the fear some people have is is this broadly peaceful line of actual control going to become active like the line of control with pakistan 
and because we are not going to be able to defend both fronts <laughs> we cannot and i think that's the thing we keep talking about a two front war but i think anyone would tell you if they were being brutally honest right uh, that india i think even india's military planners will tell you if they're being brutally honest the, the, the i think it's always been a, an understanding that you try and keep one front stable and you focus on the other front uh, it's very difficult to focus on two live fronts uh, and i think the, the there is a power differential with china as well as much as we don't want to admit it Mm. Uh, our economy is five times bigger, and they're spending four times more on their military. There are going to be challenges in dealing with that relationship, and I think that uh, 2020 was such a concerning year because this front with China has become active again. And um, and I'm glad you asked me that because we never really spoke much about the the current boundary situation, but it seems to me that it's frozen where uh, both are standing kind of face to face for the last few months in the bitter bitter cold. Uh, there's no agreement on disengaging. I still don't have an answer to you why China did this in May 2020, where you had this consensus between both countries how to manage the border, which was we agree there's no line, there's no agreed upon line. We both patrol to where our version is and we come back. But for whatever reason, starting early May, they decided that they're going to enforce their line. It's not that they've made a new claim. It's not that they're going beyond their old claim, but they're saying they're going to enforce their claim and we can't patrol up to where we were patrolling. And that's a major departure from. every principle we've had with them since the first border agreement we signed in 93 right so now i Which think we're also... completely we're in completely new terrain how do you manage yeah. this is it going to be a live front where everyone is going to try to go up to their line and come back are there going to be standoffs happening again and again and again if you don't solve it's also weird right because they're building a road pretty much up to their line they're building a road like a physical road up to their line and uh, i don't know how much truth there is to this but a lot of times i've been told that they've built roads into india they they've built a certain section of road into the indian claim uh, or the indian part of, of whatever uh, we're calling in that area uh, and they've built a road and uh, like indians are using it they're like hey cool we have a road now no, yeah <laughs> No, like Pangong Lake is what you said exactly. Where I'm sure all of you have read about Pangong Lake, and the north of Pangong Lake is where the, one of the biggest standoffs is, uh, because uh, so you have these eight uh, sort of mountain ridges on the north bank of the lake, which they call fingers, right? They go from one to eight, uh, west to east. So basically, what we've been saying is uh, finger eight, which is the easternmost end, is up to where we were you were patrolling, and the Chinese claim uh, up to finger four is where they've been patrolling. So in the past, we lived with the situation where between four and eight was a gray area where everybody went back and forth. So during the Kargil War, when our attention was on the west, they built a road all the way up to four, but we don't have a road up to eight. So all we can do is, and also there's a four is a huge ridge. You can't build a road that crosses four. So what we've been doing is we drive up to four, get out, and then we have to walk all the way to eight, which takes a lot of time. But because of the terrain, they drive all the way up to four. Now when they see us walking, they can drive up to four, stop us. and that's it so um so it's so that, that's what's been happening and I, some of it predates 2020 it's a, but i think the bigger question is what strikes me as someone who writes about china is there's been no political leadership in handling this so so it's it's very easy to say publicly you stand by your military everybody stands by your military we have no subramaniam swami making random no, but, but, but i mean you can't outsource the negotiations to the military the military is is doing what it can to defend the front but ultimately there has to be a political leadership In, yeah. in saying how do we want this relation to go how do we deal with the boundary what's our red line and more than that to communicate to the public i think it's been since may so it's been almost 7 8 it's been 8 months since the crisis began and the government still hasn't come out and publicly said 
where we've lost territory, how much land China has occupied since May. I feel like as someone covering this, the, the, the transparency has been pretty low. I mean, if you don't know it, there's no way we know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what, what, what about the assumption? And this is the last thing I'm going to ask. I know you're, it's probably the, the, a lot of people were saying that, uh, that basically she did this. Uh, uh, 11, 11. Sorry? Yeah, 11. 11. Sorry, 11, yeah. 11. His, his children are going to be called 12 and 13, and that they're going <laughs> yeah. to have finger eight. Uh, <laughs> uh, they said that he did it to try and sort of like the same logic as you said of General Mao. Basically, the 1960 video war was invoked by him because he was losing support in China. Is there any truth to uh, to Xi or the PLA sort of doing this just to drum up some support specifically post-COVID, especially the first couple of months? I mean, it's hard to say with certainty, but I, I mean, um, since it's, a, it's always difficult speculating about why they did it, right? We're still debating about why they did 62. And we don't know for sure. Some say it's because of Tibet. Some say he wanted to teach Nehru a lesson. Some say it's because of his domestic issues. Probably a combination of all. Uh, and then you had the Cuban Missile Crisis at the same time. So I, and I think there are global factors as well. So I think same here. I think it's never one thing. I think it's probably yeah. a combination of things. I think COVID may have fed into insecurities within the leadership. That it was a difficult time for China. And you've seen them acting out on all frontiers. You've seen them uh, do more. Uh, they've been sending ships into the South China Sea. They've been sailing into the Taiwan Straits more. On all their frontiers, they've been more active than they were in the past. And I think that it's. Some, I think this is one of it's something that played out here as well. I don't think they intended it for it to get out of hand, which happened in Galwan Valley in June in a clash. I don't think that was, I think it sort of escalated, but I think they were prodding on all frontiers and I think that's where it began. And you're a Liverpool fan. God, uh, no. Uh, no, my, oh, my, I'm God. a Manchester United fan because... No. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, no uh, Listen, any answer you give Neville is going to be the wrong answer. Because no, no, no. <laughs> I was just... No, no. He, because you said Benitez, so I assumed that therefore there was some... No, I, I did read a couple... I mean, Benitez, even though I, I, I strongly detest and dislike Liverpool, I've always uh, found him as a very interesting character and I read a couple of books about him and the way he goes about things and I found him to be a very, very interesting guy. Alright, so uh, United at the top of the table at the end of the year, yes or no? Now is I'll take it. I'm happy to be. uh, (laughs) I'm happy for it to be as it is now. So yeah, but unlikely end of the year, I think. Okay. Super. This has been a very fun, very insightful conversation. Anand, thanks a lot for coming. Uh, I mean, I'll plug this book for you, India's China Challenge. Uh, I'm uh, going to probably get through the rest of it uh, by the time we meet next. Uh, is there anything else, uh, Anand, you'd like to plug? Anything that you'd like people to... The newsletter, again, is uh, very interesting. Um, I'll put yeah, the fine. link for... Sure. Yeah, I just started that on Jan first. So, uh, it's, so if you're interested in India and China, I send it out Monday to Friday. Some of the best readings that I find uh, on India and China and what's happening in China. So I send that out Monday to Friday. Uh, Super. So I'll put that in the description. Uh, in the, in the, not in the comments for those people asking. It'll be in the description. Uh, both the link to the book as well as the newsletter. Neville, what are you up to, my friend? Please tell us what you would like to say and sell in the world. Uh, no, Anand can leave and then we can do this. <laughs> I mean, okay. Thanks Anand, so much for having me. It was a real <laughs> yeah. pleasure. Thanks, Thank you guys. so much, Anand. Really appreciate Thanks. it. Bye. Thank you, Anand. Bye. Bye-bye. See you. Yeah, Neville and we will just continue for about six what minutes. A, oh. What a legend, yeah. dude. Acha, India 98 for two, huh? Yeah, but uh, Stumps Pua, kya? Uh, no, not yet. I don't think Stumps Pua, no. Oh, so Rahane and Pujara are doing the same thing that they did uh, last time. No, she just survived uh, Sharma leave. just got out, yeah. So, 52. No, that was a time ago. Sharma got out like uh, long back. I was slightly doing it on the side. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, uh, so, like, sometimes, I was, sometimes I was seeing Super Chat and sometimes I was like, how much did we make?
Oh, dude, now I'm a little more relaxed. Like the brain doesn't have to be fully like, like. <laughs> dude, this is the problem, dude. When you're talking about when you're when you're talking to an expert, like you just have to be clinging onto every word because there's so much coming your way. Okay, I just dropped a video on my channel. Uh, we dropped NRI. It's a video that uh, of a pilot that was commissioned. Uh, that wasn't commissioned actually. We spent our own money, Bridge Bhakta and I, uh, and we uh, shot it. And we shot it in 2015. It got shortlisted at Mami, but um, uh, it got shortlisted at Mami, but nobody ever picked it up because uh, it's pure English and it has a pace that nobody will enjoy and things like that. But that's how we wanted to do it. That's how we shot it. Go to my channel and watch it, like it, uh, please. It'll help. Uh, and uh, somebody wants to start a crowd fund to shoot the entire series. I don't mind. <laughs> What is this? What is NRI? What are you and Rich Bhakta doing together? No, what so this, we uh... we shot uh we shot a pilot for uh this this web we wanted to create this web series. You know, in 2015, web series were a thing, right? So yeah, yeah. we wanted to do a eight episode web series, about 15 minute episodes each. Uh and in the pilot, also there are two scenes that we couldn't shoot because it involved blocking traffic and had a rickshawala and all of that. So we didn't have the money to shoot it. Um, so there are two scenes that we couldn't shoot. But outside of that, the pilot is sort of complete. Uh, and we shot it in 2015. We were hoping to sell it. We weren't able to sell it. So I just decided to drop it on my channel. Uh, fuck it. Because we have it. Why not drop it? So we've dropped it on our channel. Please go uh, to it. And if someone wants to take the mantle of starting a crowdfund, please, by all means. But we need a lot of money to shoot it. So you have to do it. You can't just say like, hey, you guys started on my behalf. This is, the- listen, this sounds exactly like that problem that happened that uh, with Baba the Dhaba, which that guy collected money on their behalf. But you know what my problem is? My problem uh-huh. is if the money, if the money starts coming into me, then I'm responsible for it. Right now, uh-huh. somebody can create, somebody can create a fund and keep the yeah. money. Once it hits a certain corpus, then I can put the rest in and shoot what I need to shoot. Like, you know, like I don't have to worry. And otherwise we never reach the corpus. Then we just distribute it back to the people who gave it. So we sort of can do it like that. Oh, I got to see this man. I don't know. It's like an episode and like it's a fiction episode. By the way, all the links that you guys seem to be putting in the chat seem to be not the right links. Uh, I don't know if something's going wrong with my whatever, but all the links that have been put for NRI so far coming for oops, something is wrong. Uh, so just double check the link. I have a feeling that's the wrong link. I think Kajol um, has put a link. Kajol has put a link which seems to be working. So is it working? I, I'm still getting oops. Uh, it's wrong. Oops, okay. something went wrong. Wait, I don't, I don't know. I'll copy. Anyway, uh, I'm sure we'll figure it. Out. I'll again. I'll, I'll put the link for NRI in the description once again. So please go watch NRI. Even I want to see this NRI. Any fiction yeah. is good fiction. Because we had to give it for mommy. We just didn't uh, put it on anything. So also it's a bit dated in that sense because of, you know, just the fact that in 2015, it was a slightly more time where you could experiment with that pace and things like that. So we did that. Uh, Kushalna Sit, uh, I don't know how to ex- pronounce this. I may have gotten this completely wrong, but Ka- Kaushal. Kaushal Nasit, Sitna, Kaushal, Nasit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kaushal, uh, Sitna, Kaushal uh, yeah. is uh, asking if you can get Malabar Cadillac. See, the thing with Malabar Cadillac is I need I need a minimum of 50,000 subscribers on Instagram. Otherwise, it's pointless. And I will do it with, and I will do it on the Discord server at uh, thing because I don't have rights to put it on my channel. 
Malabar Cadillac is a movie, right? But you'll put yeah. it on the Instagram. Why do you need? Okay, ha. Huh. So I need. I the, want. I'm giving motivation. I want fifty, fifty, sixty grand on my Instagram. Then I will be like, okay, now let's watch Malabar Cadillac. Something. I, even I have to get something now for showing Malabar Cadillac. Okay, Dude, can that's I, the can end I of my speak? career. Can <laughs> can I make a suggestion about this NRI? Can you make a better thumbnail than this shitty thumbnail of this of this one? I'm saying of it's it's a screenshot from the thing. It has the it has the narrative beauty of the theme. That's why it's that. supposed to be like that. It's it's believe it or not. That's the title credit, and that's how it's supposed to go. That's the title. It's like ah. it's it's. सीक्वेंस so that egg where there are two egg scenes that and the date are both oml tu pata tere ko pata chalega bata mere ko nahi to 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 ye allegation kya hai ki it's it's not as good as the rest of the episode or it's better than the rest of the episode oh no 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 we shot it in oml you can't tell it's oml oh acha that way acha that way. i thought acha i was, I was kind of i was kind of proud of it like the way we did it you couldn't tell it's Haan. oml because we sort of oh, did it really well उटेंगे and some money we got from somewhere and till then we were just like free 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 free, free, free so free, i don't know yeah, yeah. but i want to see i was i was feature film people to do it for free so it's not like like <laughs> it's not even friends like adar and kautuk and all of these people are there like kautuk looks like a newbile infant in that but i'm saying yeah. uh, all of these guys so of course we've gotten free but dude we were us we was technicians who work on cinema to come and yeah. do it like so it's great anyway I like how you just uh, completely dismiss both Adar and Anu as not feature film people. No, I meant that. I meant that they're you friends. You just said they're great friends. They're friends, yeah. so we can ask them for favors. But bro, yeah. अभी विशाल सिन्हा को जाके मैं कैसा बोल सकता अच्छा सुन? And विशाल सिन्हा is like, uh, I remember the, during the production when we were producing it, uh, विशाल सिन्हा was like, don't worry, I'll do it for free. So मेरे को side में producer बोल रहा है, हाँ भाई विशाल सिन्हा तो free में करेगा, लेकिन technician और camera जो वो मांग रहा है और lighting जो वो मांग रहा है, वो तो महंगा है ना? I said अभी bro विशाल से, so it's like you can't get विशाल सिन्हा and tell him no now shoot with a DSLR and and here is one light, here is one tube light, shoot with this. So uh, so then विशाल was like no no don't worry I'll talk to the vendor, I'll get you a discount on the camera, I'll get you a discount on the dolly, I'll get you a discount on the nice. oh dude it was mad. Oh, it's so nice when people do that, man. When they are like just out going yeah. out of their way for stuff. So go watch NRI again. I'll put it in the in the description. A uh, couple of things that I have to plug again. Uh, as I said, I have uh, made this uh, show available on uh, audio version. So if you want to listen to the podcast version, I'm going to put the link in the pinned comment as well as the uh, description. So that's the podcast link right there that I put up. Uh, please go subscribe. Uh, right now we have a sub total of twelve subscribers because I just started this. Uh, but I'm going to put this episode. Uh, I'm going to put pretty much everything going forward uh, on that particular thing. Uh, also, we did an anime stream with uh, 
Akash Mehta about Attack on Titan season three yesterday, mm. uh, which is quite fun, and I'm going to keep doing more. I think the next one is going to be with Animate TM. I generally don't know who that is, but I will research and find out. But it should be fun. So that's the Akash Anime stream as well, and. Uh, again, uh, join our Discord and support the show on Insta Mojo PayPal if you can, and that's about it, guys. Uh, follow me on Instagram, guys. Yeah, Instagram. Follow both of us. At 60k, you get Malabar guideline. At 60k, you get Malabar guideline. There you go. See, that's the bribe we need. Follow both of us on Instagram. I keep losing subscribe followers on Instagram in equal proportion to how I gain subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. no, my my Instagram is that it's that same thing. You gained ninety followers, but you lost fucking sixty followers, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. cumulative yeah, total thirty yeah. man. So 30. at least it's plus thirty, but I get one thousand unfollowed and one thousand followed, so I get zero. It's always my number has been hundred and five thousand for a year now. So like, there is something that I'm putting in the universe where once people are reminded that I exist, they're like, fuck off. Reels, 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 <laughs> yeah, bro, reels. reels. Yeah. Uh, super. Thanks all for everybody tuning in. Thanks to my mods, Kajol, uh, Bhargav, uh, Raghav, uh, everybody else. Uh, everybody who gave super chat really appreciated. Really nice of you. And Anand Krishna, please follow him everywhere. He was very. I genuinely recommend the book. I'm just genuinely saying that. And by the way, also have to mention, I got in touch with his publishers and said, Hey, I want to interview him. Okay. And they're like, Yes, we'll get back to you. I'm like, Hey, can you please get me in touch? And they're like, Of course, we'll get back to you. I tweeted to him, and this happened in a week. <laughs> so I'm just saying, his publishers really—you guys really need to respond to WhatsApp messages. I, I got I in touch with him. Yeah. I have a feeling that in one week they will say, "Hey, we have spoken to Anand, and Anand has said <laughs> that he is—he is currently busy uh, because he cannot." And then you just send them the link of the webs of the episode. That, and say, that's a—that's a more pettier thing than what I was planning. What I was planning oh. was to send them the thing that, "Hey." Uh, don't worry about it. I have coordinated and done it already. But I like this. This is yeah. way more pettier. See, this is why this we talk. Wait Never. till they wait till they come back to you. Just keep following up. <laughs> Super man, Neville. Always a pleasure, man. And we have to keep the property joke running for every specialist we get on. And um, thanks for coming, brother. Thanks to everybody too. All right, guys. Really fun chat that was with Anand Krishnan and Neville Shah. Good questions by Neville. I will rate his questions today at about seven point eight to eight point four on ten. Good performance. Uh, makes up for the Ramchandra Guha episode, which I'll never forget. Reminding him. Uh, follow Neville everywhere. He does a show with uh, Azim called Four Four Two Two Four Two Four Four something like that, which is about football. I don't follow football, so I probably got it wrong. Um, and of course, Neville has his own uh, YouTube page. You can check out his show NRI. Uh, Anand has a book again. Go and buy the book. Uh, genuinely enjoying it. India's China Challenge, which is on Amazon and Kindle and everywhere else, you get books. Um, so go buy his book and also subscribe to his newsletter, which you can on his Twitter bio. I'll also put it in the description for your assistance. Uh, thanks a lot for tuning in, guys. I really appreciate everybody who super chats and just chats in general and tunes into us on YouTube. Uh, YouTube.com/slash/pantonfire is the link. And again, as I said, if you enjoy the show and would like to support it, uh, then head to PayPal or Insta Mojo to keep this show running and subscribe to the audio version, please, so that we can do it. Uh, once again, I have shows coming up, uh, starting shows again. Pune is the first uh, site, which is twenty second, twenty third, twenty fourth. Limited tickets because of COVID restrictions. So go there and buy tickets on Sorapanth dot com. Uh, next episode coming up with is is with Ashish Shakya and. Um, Ronak Rajani and Jia Sethi, Ashish, ex-founder of AIB, and uh, Ronak, ex-founder of himself, and Jia Sethi, current founder of lots of comedy stuff. So three comedians next time. Thanks a lot for tuning in, guys. Love you. Goodbye.